0: Doctors from Walter Reed National Military Center say Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was treated for prostate cancer and then complications of a procedure. His infection is cleared, but Austin's refusal to disclose his condition to the administration has caused criticism inside the White House and out. Today is Tuesday, January 9th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins, also coming up. Sailors on the Great Lakes are hoping $17 billion of federal investment in maritime infrastructure can help revitalize their waterways.
1: Truck
2: drivers are in short supply. Railroads are kind of maxed right now, so when you can ship
1: vast quantities on a boat, you simplify things greatly.
0: Federal funding to repair the aging ports, they say, would help. Also, it's Wolverine Day in Michigan after the four-team playoff in college football. This is WBUR. It's 401.
3: News headlines and the forecast are coming up. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Pentagon confirms the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is being treated for prostate cancer. Doctors say he was caught early and his prognosis is excellent. And NPR's Greg Myrie tells us, or has more, on the fallout from Austin's decision to delay informing the White House about his recent hospitalizations.
4: Doctors at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center say Defense Secretary Austin was diagnosed with prostate cancer a month ago. He was given general anesthesia and underwent surgery on December 22nd. Austin returned home the next day and his prognosis was described as excellent. But the Defense Secretary suffered severe stomach pain on January 1st and was taken back to Walter Reed. Doctors in the intensive care unit determined that Austin's abdominal fluids were not draining properly. He's now recovering, though the latest information does not explain why the White House was unaware of his condition for several days. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington.
3: Now, the White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the president found out about Austin's diagnosis today.
5: Nobody at the White House knew that Secretary Austin had prostate cancer until this morning.
3: Kirby addressing reporters a short time ago. In other news, a panel of federal appeals court judges Heard arguments today on whether former President Donald Trump is immune from prosecution for actions he took while in office. And Piers Ryan Lucas reports the hearing surrounds Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 vote.
6: Trump Attorney Dean John Sauer argued before the three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals that Trump is immune from prosecution for actions taken when he was president. Sauer argued that Trump could only be prosecuted if he had first been impeached and convicted by Congress. Trump was twice impeached by the House but not convicted either time in the Senate. Assistant Special Counsel James Pierce, speaking for the government, disagreed. Pierce said the president has a unique constitutional role but is not beyond the law and former presidents do not enjoy immunity from criminal prosecution. If the court rules against Trump, he is expected to appeal and that would likely delay Trump's trial currently scheduled to start March 4th. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
3: A commercial robotic mission of the moon will not make it to the lunar surface. Here's NPR's Jeff Brunfield. The
1: small probe was launched on Monday by the company Astrobotic. Shortly after reaching space, it ran into trouble. The company quickly realized that the spacecraft's propulsion system had sprung a leak, causing it to tumble. They've regained control but have continued to lose propellant. They now say they only have enough fuel to operate for about another day and a half. The mission was the first of a series of NASA-backed commercial flight to the moon. NASA hopes that these companies will one day ferry equipment and experiments to astronauts on the lunar surface. Separately, the space agency announced it is pushing back its first mission to send astronauts to orbit the moon since the Apollo program. It will be delayed until 2025.
3: That's Jeff Brumfield. It's NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Utility National Grid says customers in Massachusetts should prepare just in case they're without power following this evening's storms. That's because of the high winds expected to possibly pull down tree limbs onto power lines. Nicola Medlalova says is the head of the electricity for National Grid New England.
7: We are expecting this to be a multi-day event. For for us, this is what we call um, a type 3 event. Um, As I say, that's something around 140,000 customers out at peak and up to 72 hours. Um, to restore at least 95% of customers.
0: National Grid has more than 800 online crews ready to restore power. She reminds customers that restoration work can only begin after high winds die down likely tomorrow afternoon. Amtrak is cancelling some trains across the northeast today because of the storm. That includes Amtrak and Acela trips between Boston New York and Washington. You can change reservations on the Amtrak website. More than 2,000 acres of forest in Lynn, Saugus and Lynnfield is protected from future development. The State Department of Conservation has issued a restriction on the land, barring most development projects in the forested areas of Lynn Woods. DCR Commissioner Brian Arrigo says the preservation agreement was years in the making.
8: There have been threats of development proposals,
2: including, uh, I believe, a golf course and uh, rerouting Route 95. So the protection of this land and preserving access to parks and open spaces especially in environmental justice communities like Lynn, is a a top priority.
0: Lynn Woods has trails for hiking, biking, and skiing. In the forecast, the storm is bearing down on the region now. May start with some snow, but then turning to a wind-driven rain. Should be really heavy overnight tonight, anywhere from 1 to 3 inches. Rain could move out by daybreak tomorrow, but the wind should stick around during the day. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. 37 degrees now at 406
9: we're funded by you, our listeners, and by Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm
6: Ari Shapiro in Washington. We're getting some answers today to the questions that have been swirling around the health of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. This question started after it was revealed that Austin was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital on January 1st and that key officials, including the president, were unaware of the secretary's hospitalization until days afterwards. Well, today, Austin's doctors revealed that he was being treated for prostate cancer and complications from a resulting surgical procedure. NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is here with the latest. Hey, Tom. Hey, Ari. Details just trickling out this afternoon. It's moving so quickly. What can you tell us right
7: now? Well, let's start with what Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder told us this afternoon. The department recognizes the understandable concerns expressed by the public, Congress, and the news media in terms of notification timelines and DOD transparency. Well, so
8: Secretary Austin was treated for prostate cancer at Walter Reed Hospital on December 22nd, underwent a prostatectomy, was under general anesthetic. And uh, we're also learning for the first time about this. And the White House was not informed about this. Uh, Austin did delegate uh, his authority to his deputy at that time. So then uh, there were complications as a result of the uh, surgery. On the night of January 1st, Austin had uh, some pain in his legs and abdomen, and it turns out he had a urinary infection and went to intensive care at Walter Reed for monitoring. Officials said he's still in the hospital and his prognosis is excellent, but again, a lot of questions here.
6: Valuable information that it seems like maybe important people should have had before now. I mean, th- to say the obvious, this is not the way we usually learn about public h- officials' health problems, no, right? No, it's
8: absolutely astounding. And there are many, many questions here. Secretary Austin is very private, rarely talks to the press or is in, in public. There have been times in the past when defense secretaries like Donald Rumsfeld and Robert Gates, you know, suffered broken bones. Public was notified immediately. And just recently, the top Marine Corps general, Eric Smith, suffered a heart attack. The public was immediately informed and kept up to date on his medical condition. Again, we're talking the defense secretary here, the top military advisor to the president, at a time of war in the Middle East with American troops sometimes engaging uh, with uh, militant uh, groups in, in that region. The White House said President Biden only learned today the secretary was being treated for prostate cancer. Now, Mm -hmm. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder said there were shortfalls here, and he said we have to do a better job. And I spoke with one retired official who said, listen, this is either bad judgment or a breakdown in communications. Either way,
6: this official called it very weird. What do we know about how the breakdown in communication happened and who knew what when? Well, that's still kind of confusing too. We know Austin was
8: transferred by ambulance to Walter Reed in the night of January first. The next day, the staff was told, and his deputy uh, Kathleen Hicks was, you know, basically took over as his acting secretary. But she was never told he was in the hospital. Hmm. She was in Puerto Rico, and wasn't told until a couple of days later that he was in fact in the hospital. She offered to come home, and they said, "Don't worry, he's going to take over back his duties on Friday." But again. People were just left unaware, including the President of the United States.
6: And in a sentence or two, what's the reaction been from the White House on the Hill?
8: Well, Democrats and Republicans on the Hill want answers. They want to know what his condition is, why people weren't notified. They're very, very upset. Ari, you're likely going to see hearings on this.
6: NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman, thank you. You're welcome.
10: Now we have a story about a group of people who did something many other people might consider foolish. They got loans, sometimes for a lot of money, and paid them back even though they didn't have to.
6: We're talking about the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP for short. And Sasha, you've been looking into this as part of your reporting work on NPR's investigations team. So you got to know one of those people. And let's listen to you introduce us to him now.
10: Bob Morrill is a lawyer whose office looks mostly like what you'd expect in a traditional law firm, the framed diploma, the grandfather clock. But there's also something odd.
2: Oh, that's my Tommy Bahama beach chair. It's multicolored. It has sort of Caribbean colors of oranges and, and reds.
10: It's left over from COVID lockdown days, when Morrill and his co-workers couldn't enter their building for health safety reasons. So when they had to meet, they'd gather outside in the parking lot, B-Y-O-C, bring your own chair.
2: It would look like something out of a mob movie, like you'd have a bunch of lawyers with masks on sitting in these beach chairs talking about business.
10: A comical sight, but a nerve-wracking time financially. Morrill was managing partner then, and his mind swirled with concerns about how the pandemic might affect business.
2: Are revenues going to drop off? By how much are they going to drop off? How soon are they going to drop off?
10: So his firm, Gilmore, Reese & Carlson of Wellesley, Massachusetts, turned to the federal government's Paycheck Protection Program, which gave loans to small businesses during
2: COVID. We applied for and received a loan for $700,000.
10: Now. NPR has done many stories about how the $800 billion paycheck protection program was rampant with fraud and waste. By one estimate, fraudsters may have gotten $64 billion. Billions more went to businesses that didn't need it, and to companies owned by wealthy celebrities, including Khloe Kardashian and Tom Brady. Yet the vast majority of PPP loans have been forgiven — 96% of all the money. But Bob Morrill's law firm is a very different story. Back at his office, he shows me a pile of paper.
2: In this stack here, I have our application for the PPP loan. And I have the loan paid in full. It was $694,930. And then we actually paid interest of about $5,600 on that amount.
10: His firm repaid its entire Um, loan, even though it would have been eligible for forgiveness according to the program's rules. So why did it repay it? Morrill says it's simple. The business was able to survive without the money, so keeping it would have felt wrong.
2: The analogy that comes to mind to me is like, you're throwing life preservers to people on a boat in a storm, and if they don't need it, when the boat pulls back into the harbor, they ought to give the life preservers back.
10: And the pandemic turned out to be not that stormy for his business. Morrill says the firm never had to lay anyone off or reduce their hours or cut their pay. It even made money.
2: Was it as much profit as we would have had but for COVID? No, but that's the risk of running a business. You have good years and bad years.
10: So the law firm returned the loan.
2: No, I haven't heard about a lot of cases of that happening.
10: University of Chicago finance professor Eric Zwick studied the Paycheck Protection Program. Some companies repaid their loans because they didn't meet forgiveness criteria. But to be eligible for forgiveness and still pay it back on ethical grounds? Zwick says that's rare.
2: I would expect that particular reason to be fairly uncommon. But it's interesting that there are some cases that you found. And I think probably more interesting that there are so few
10: Very few. NPR analyzed data from the Small Business Administration and found, of the 11.5 million PPP loans issued, only about 73,000 were repaid without requesting forgiveness. Just six-tenths of a percent. That includes some large companies like Shake Shack and the LA Lakers that were pressured to return the money after public uproar. The SBA says it also includes companies that thought repaying would be easier than applying for forgiveness or that thought they weren't eligible for forgiveness. But repaying a forgivable loan out of benevolence is a foreign concept to many experts.
11: Hello, everyone. Welcome to what promises to be a fascinating conversation on the Paycheck Protection Program.
10: Listen to an exchange at this panel I attended at Harvard University last year. Prominent economist Glenn Hubbard, former dean of Columbia University's Columbia University Business School, sounds baffled by this question from an audience member. Were any of those loans repaid?
12: Uh, essentially, they weren't. That wasn't the point. Was effectively to give away the money. Um, so the only way you would repay is if you violated some of the tenets of it. But no, you wouldn't expect it to be repaid.
10: NPR reached out to numerous companies that repaid their loans without requesting forgiveness. Most wouldn't talk, so it's unclear why they made that decision. The president of one bank that processed PPP loans, Bert Tallerman of Cape Cod Five Cent Savings Bank, says some may have repaid the money to avoid a potential government
12: audit. But if someone had that principle that this was intended for someone who needed it, I didn't need it, therefore I'm paying it back, good for you. Although, truthfully,
10: I was skeptical of Bob Morrill's explanation for why his law firm repaid its loan, so I pushed him on possible other reasons. Did it think keeping the money could have hurt its reputation? Morrill said no. He assumes most people wouldn't even have known his firm got a loan. Could it have had negative tax consequences? No, because PPP loans are not taxable. Was he aware forgiveness was easy? Morrill said yes. In fact, he said repayment was difficult.
2: It was more of an effort than I would have anticipated to pay it back. Trying to pay it back was kind of a headache, you know, so the whole system was set up for everything to be forgiven.
10: You're a very tiny minority. Most people I've interviewed had the expectation that it was going to be forgiven and absolutely chose to get it forgiven. So I'm sure there are listeners thinking, this guy sounds very Pollyanna.
2: Maybe I'm a Boy Scout. I don't know. I don't know. I just, it just, it was the right thing to do. I don't know what to tell you. I believe in America. I believe in capitalism. And I don't see it as my place to have my business subsidized by the government if I don't need it. Yet countless
10: businesses that thrived during COVID kept their PPP loans. Like many construction and manufacturing and teleworking software firms. Morrill says it bothers him that more companies didn't give the money back.
2: I don't want to sound self-righteous, but the people at the higher wealth end of the spectrum that kept it, that didn't need it, yeah, I got a problem with that.
10: And he wishes the government had appealed to companies to return money they didn't need.
2: I I worry sometimes in Washington, money is not real. It's It's like snowflakes in a storm. They just throw it out there, who cares? But at the end of the day, someone has to pay this back, right? My kids have to pay it back. My grandkids will be paying it back. Because all those Paycheck Protection Program
10: loans that were forgiven have contributed to the national debt, which is now $34 trillion. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News.
6: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, the U.S. Education Department is debating whether to make a potentially disruptive change to this year's FAFSA process to help borrowers and to remedy a department mistake. FAFSA snafus coming up in about 20 minutes on
11: WBUR. WBUR supporters include Brookline Booksmith. Alex Michaelides and Karen Schiffman discuss Michaelides' new novel, The Fury, on January 17th. BrooklineBooksmith.com. A Somerville based company
0: plans to open a manufacturing facility in Western Mass to make low carbon cement. Sublime Systems says it will develop the plant in Holyoke on a site that formerly housed paper mills. The company manufactures cement using renewable energy instead of kilns that are fired by fossil fuels. And it uses raw materials that emit less CO2 than traditional cement
11: that's made with limestone. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Celebrity Series, with countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo at Jordan Hall on January 19th, performing music from Vivaldi to Streisand. CelebritySeries.org. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash cars. Got weather
0: advisories on three fronts this evening through tomorrow morning, covering most of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and northern Connecticut. A flood watch uh, comes into effect as we prepare for two to three inches of rain overnight tonight and tomorrow. That's on top of melting snow that could cause flooding of rivers and streams in low-lying areas. Cape and Island should be spared, though. A coastal flood advisory in effect for tomorrow morning, and the winds could stir up problems starting at about
13: 5 o'clock today through tomorrow afternoon. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person at yptc.com slash NPR. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer.
6: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it's making those apps safer for kids. This comes after growing pressure from all sides. Parents, lawmakers, former employees, you name it. And the company is also fending off lawsuits. NPR Tech correspondent Dara Kerr has the details. Hi, Dara. Hi, Ari. What is Meta changing about how these apps work? (laughs)
14: Yeah. <laughs> So this change is one of the biggest moves Meta has made to try and make Instagram and Facebook safer for kids. The company says that over the next few months it'll start automatically restricting various types of content on teenagers accounts. That means posts about suicide, self-harm, and eating disorders. And this is for all people under the age of 18. So say you're a teen and one of your friends posts something about self-harm on Instagram. Meta says its filters will automatically block you from seeing that post. And teens aren't also, are also not going to be able to search for that type of content. And if they do, Meta says they'll be directed to resources for help.
6: A lot of questions about these announcements. I guess the biggest is, will this actually make things safer for kids online?
14: Yeah, it is really hard to solve things like this. On the one hand, it may restrict teens from seeing certain posts, but on the other hand, it could prevent them from knowing when to reach out to a friend in trouble. And today I've heard from a bunch of child safety advocates who think these changes still don't go far enough. There's a lot of toxic content on social media, so teens may still be vulnerable to bullying and and seeing posts that aren't being captured by Meta's filters.
6: Does Meta even know who is a teen and who's not?
14: Well, you're supposed to put in your birth date when you sign up, but it's pretty easy for kids to lie about their age on Facebook and Instagram. Here's psychologist Jean Twangy. Their parents might have no idea
10: just the way it's set up because you don't need parental permission. Just check a box. Check a box saying that you're... 13 or, um, you know, you choose a different birth year and boom, you're on.
14: I talked to a Meta spokeswoman about this and she acknowledged people can misrepresent their ages on apps. And she said Meta is investing in age verification tools and technology to try and detect when people lie about their ages.
6: These apps have been around for years and Meta has been criticized for these sorts of things almost as long. Why did it take until now for them to put these policies in place?
14: Yeah, well, this year has been a particular doozy for META. Um, We need a lot more time already to get into all of it, but it's fair to say META has been attacked on all fronts. Parent groups have rallied on Capitol Hill, and this is even an issue that's united conservatives and liberals in Congress. A bipartisan group of senators are pushing to pass legislation called the Kids Online Safety Act, which would hold social media companies accountable for feeding teens toxic content. And also, a new meta whistleblower came forward with more information about what goes on inside the company.
6: A new whistleblower, but a couple years ago, we heard from another whistleblower that Facebook was aware its products harmed kids, right?
14: Yeah, yeah. In 2021, an initial whistleblower came forward. And then this past November, Arturo Bahar, whose job involved protecting Meta's users, went public with new internal documents. Those showed Meta hasn't stopped its algorithms from pushing harmful content to teens. And that's led to a massive lawsuit by 40 states alleging Meta's social media products are addictive. And that has fueled a mental health crisis for teens. So Mena's announcement today, which was in a blog post, may be a way to try and reckon with all of this pressure.
6: Thank you, that's NPR's Derek Kerr. And if you or someone you know is in an emotional crisis, dial 988.
10: The drought is over.
15: Hail, hail Michigan. They are the champions of college football 2023
10: last night the michigan wolverines defeated the washington huskies 34 to 13 making them college national champions it's a big moment for a school that's measured its drought in two ways first michigan's last national football title in 1997 was shared with nebraska and second if we're talking about standalone titles the wolverines were last champs in 1948. it's also a big moment for college football as a whole Because next year, the playoffs expand from four to 12 teams. That sets up a new era of play. Nicole Auerbach is a senior writer with The Athletic and NBC Sports, and she was in Houston last night as the confetti came showering down. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. Did this game live up to its hype? Well, I would say the middle of the game was not necessarily the most exciting
16: football I have ever seen in my life, but it absolutely did because you had two programs that had not been in this stage in a really long time. So the fan bases, the energy, and the storylines were everywhere, and it it was a lot of fun going into
10: the game. By the way, speaking of a very long time, my husband mentioned to me last night that the last time Michigan won, Tom Brady was on its football team. Is he right about that and how long that's been? (laughs) And we know that
16: Tom Brady is basically a cyborg at this point. So, yes, it's been a minute.
10: (laughs) (laughs) What were some key moments that swung the game in Michigan's favor?
16: Well, right out of the gate, Donovan Edwards had two long Touchdown runs of more than 40 yards right out of the gate. That'll do it and set the tone early. And then it was the end of the game where JJ McCarthy completes a big pass to tight end Colston Loveland, setting up a Blake Coram touchdown that creates the cushion that they needed. But essentially, they were able to run the
10: ball, and that's how they won the game with their defense and the run game. We mentioned that the playoff will expand to 12 teams next season. Briefly, how is that going to work?
16: So it's Similar to how it is now with a selection committee, but there will be a designated amount of spots for conference champions that are highly ranked, and then there will be at-large spots. So you will probably see a lot more teams from the Big Ten and the SEC than anywhere else, because those are typically where the best teams are, and these conferences are getting bigger next year as well, so they will have a lot of contenders. But you will see home campus games for the first round. There will be buys for the top four seeds, and there will just be additional games. And more teams will be alive in the playoff hunt as we get later into the regular season, mid-November, I think we'll be talking about 2030 teams still alive
10: in the race. Nicole, from your viewpoint, what are the pros and cons of this expansion?
16: Well, I've always been a proponent of expansion because I think you need everyone to start the season with a path to play for a national championship instead of people being told by a group in a boardroom that you're just not good enough. So I think that's a really important piece. It'll also keep more regions, more teams engaged in the regular season as it goes on because we won't just eliminate teams the second that they have their first loss or their second loss. The cons are there's more games. And this is something that comes up a lot when we talk about player welfare and player rights because, you know, they're not unionized. They are not employees and they're being asked to play more games without salaries and there's injury risk because obviously these are not professional athletes and they're waiting to get their payday in the NFL. Um, So there's just those concerns and that awkwardness there of asking for more for a multi-billion dollar industry in college sports, but there is no revenue sharing. So the money is not going directly to the players, at least at this point.
10: Mm, That added physical toll is a really interesting point. Before we let you go, what are some of the biggest headlines you're watching for ahead of next season? Well, everything's changing this offseason,
16: and that's why it was really interesting to cover this championship game, because it really did feel like the end of an era. I think you're moving more and more towards the way that professional sports works with divisions and conferences and really a national sport. And this is a college sports that has always been very regional and rivalries and It's not been this way. And so I think we're really going to be confronted by what a big
10: business, college sports, and specifically college football will be. And I think it's going to feel very different. Nicole Auerbach covers college football for The Athletic and NBC. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
6: And this is NPR News.
0: This is
10: 90.9 WBUR in Boston.
0: Thanks for joining us today. Climate scientists say 2023 was the hottest year on record and it wasn't even close.
13: Last year, from June on, each month, was warmer than the corresponding month in any previous year.
0: The latest data also showed the last eight years were the warmest eight on record. That story's coming up in about 10 minutes. Boston Bruins visit the Arizona Coyotes tonight. Puck drops at nine o'clock. Celtics are off tonight. They host the Minnesota Timberwolves tomorrow. The storm that's on the way won't come and go quietly. Look for a bit of snow changing over to heavy rain tonight and tomorrow, maybe the rumble of thunder. Definitely some whipping winds tonight through much of the day tomorrow. Details are coming up in just about five minutes here at 90.9 WBUR.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham. Still selling homegrown root vegetables and local apples all winter long. Hours and offerings at volantefarms.com. And Welch and Forbes. Over 180 years of experience providing trustee services for individuals and families. Welchforbes.com. His supporters have an idea of the appeal of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis.
18: He's kind of, I don't want to say Trump-lite, but he treats the press just like Trump did, but he's more factual.
17: So why has he struggled so far to catch on in Iowa? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again
9: tomorrow morning on 90.9 WB1.
15: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Pentagon says surgery for prostate cancer was the medical procedure that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin underwent last month and failed to warn the White House for days that he had been hospitalized. The 70-year-old Austin was admitted to Walter Reed Medical Center on December 22nd and underwent surgery to successfully treat the cancer but faced some complications one week later. Here's Department of Defense Secretary Patrick Ryder the department recognizes the understandable concerns expressed by the
7: public congress and the news media in terms of notification timelines and dod transparency and i want to underscore again that secretary austin has taken responsibility for the issues with transparency and the department is taking immediate steps to improve our notification
15: procedures the defense secretary had complications on new year's day that forced him to return to the hospital austin remains hospitalized but officials say The cancer was discovered early, and he's expected to make a full recovery. On Capitol Hill, both chambers of Congress are back for the new year and face another tight deadline to fund the government. NPR's Claudia Grisales tells us that congressional leaders have agreed to a top-line number for spending but still remain far apart on a final agreement.
11: Congressional leaders reached a deal for an $886 billion funding plan for defense spending and $773 billion for non-defense funding for the fiscal 2024 year. But members have a long to-do list to hammer out the rest of the deal to win majority support in both chambers. The government will hit the first of two shutdown deadlines on January 19th. Members are also eyeing a potential supplemental spending plan that could aid Ukraine, Israel, and address the U.S.-Mexico border. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol.
15: You're listening to NPR.
11: This is
0: 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is preparing to give her second State of the City address tonight. As WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports, one of the mayor's predecessors is anticipating an ambitious agenda.
19: Former Mayor Kim Janey says she expects Mayor Wu to put forth a bold vision for the future, and that vision includes a good working relationship with the Boston City Council.
3: I think she'll want to continue on a
18: path where she is bringing people along for this journey of where she wants to take us. And so the council is a big part of that, and I think she recognizes that, which is why she was engaged in the council races last cycle, and I think it will serve her well.
19: Janie says she doesn't mean the relationship will always be smooth sailing, but she sees it being productive, even with potential bumps. Tonight's speech is scheduled to begin at 7.30. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. WBR's
0: coverage of the speech begins at 7 o'clock tonight. U.S. Labor Department is accusing a Woburn-based senior care company of withholding overtime wages for more than 600 skilled nurses. Next Step Healthcare runs 25 skilled nursing facilities in the state. The department says employees regularly work through their 30-minute lunch breaks for at least three years without additional pay. WBR has reached out to Next Step for comment. A storm heading into Boston could cause widespread outages throughout the area. WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce has more.
18: Well, areas of rain and snow continue to fill in over the next couple of hours. It will start as a brief burst of snow along and outside of 495, where a coating to a couple inches falls before the changeover. For the city, it rains and rains hard overnight tonight. Downpours embedded thunder possible, a widespread 1 to 3 inches. Localized flooding, coastal flooding concerns. The rain ends 6 to 7 a.m. tomorrow, just a shower after that wind is going to be howling too. numerous gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour including for the city gusts to 60 miles per hour along the immediate coast of cape ann the south shore and cape cod will get scattered outages and damage the worst wind from midnight to 6 a.m
0: the storm appears to be in central massachusetts right now we'll get updates from danielle throughout the afternoon this is wbur it's 4:35.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from BritBox, with the goal of helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original series Archie, The Man Who Became Cary Grant, streaming at Britbox.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm
6: Ari Shapiro in Washington. 2023 was the hottest year on record, and today scientists released data showing just how much hotter it really was compared to previous record-breaking years. We'll get to that number in just a few minutes.
10: First, though, we're going to talk about the FAFSA. That's the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. More than 17 million people are expected to fill out the form this year, hoping to get help from the U.S. government to pay for college. But the form arrived three months late, just before New Year's. And in addition to that rocky rollout, there's a big problem with the form, one that could end up costing students. NPR's Corey Turner is here to explain. Hi, Corey. Hey, Sasha. I have several friends whose kids are high school seniors and have been talking about this, this bumpy process, but you're actually yeah. talking about an, an additional issue. So set the scene for us.
20: Yeah, so it it's all tied together into this massive FAFSA overhaul that the Ed Department has had to do because several years ago Congress passed this big bipartisan, believe it or not, law requiring a bunch of important changes. Lawmakers wanted the form to be shorter, uh, easier to fill out, which it is, and more generous for lower-income Americans in particular. And these changes took a ton of work, which is why the Ed Department delayed the form's release nearly three months, from October 1st to December 30th. The hiccups we saw last week, Sasha, as part of what they were calling a soft launch, like limited availability of the form, long wait times... Those problems do seem to have been ironed out. But there is, as you said, an even bigger problem that has not been fixed that the department somehow missed during this big overhaul.
10: Yeah, tell us about that. How did that happen?
20: Well, it was first reported last month by The Washington Post. And remember when I said this new FAFSA is more generous for lower-income Americans? Well, one way it does that is by protecting more of a student's or family's income from being considered in the overall student aid math. Not only that, Congress told the department they need to adjust these income protections so they keep up with inflation, which is a big deal considering the last couple of years. The problem is, the department never made that inflation adjustment. Now. Without a fix, many families are now going to appear like they have a lot more income than they really do, and that means they're gonna get less federal student aid. It won't hurt the lowest income families, but it is gonna hit hundreds of thousands of students just above them. And keep in mind one more thing here, Sasha. This formula, this math the department uses, it affects federal work studies, student loans, even scholarships offered by states and schools.
10: But Corey, you said Congress mandated this inflation adjustment in law, told the okay. department to do it. So why doesn't the department just fix it, do it, change the calculation, and correct the problem?
21: I,
20: that is the question. Until recently, the department's plan seemed to be to wait until the 2025-26 FAFSA and try to make these big adjustments retroactively. But I have been hearing from sources that it's now leaning in the opposite direction towards doing it now this year. Officially, a spokesperson says they're still assessing their options. The problem is waiting till next year, um, it's gonna hurt a lot of students this year because of this mistake, they're going to miss out on really important federal grant money. Waiting till next year also, as you point out, doesn't follow the law. Uh, I think the fact that the department hasn't just gone ahead and done this says a lot about how difficult and disruptive they worry this fix could be. I mean, I'm oversimplifying things here, but it would involve rewriting a ton of code and human hours the department just doesn't have. You know, Keep in mind, this form is already delayed from October to December. The timeline for schools to make aid offers to students is way behind. I think the department just feels torn here between getting students all the aid they're entitled to by law and not further disrupting what's already been a pretty messy financial aid process.
10: Huge ripple effects on families and kids. That's NPR's Corey Turner. Corey, thank you.
20: You're welcome. It's official.
6: 2023 was the hottest year ever recorded by a lot. That's according to new data released today by European Union scientists. Rebecca Hersher of NPR's Climate Desk is here with more. Hi, Becky. Hi. I feel like a Borscht Belt comedian asking you,
22: how hot was it? (laughs) so hot Ari uh 2023 was the hottest year since we started keeping track of global temperatures um reliable records actually go back all the way to 1850 and it was likely the hottest year going back much further than that like 125,000 years scientists can figure that out by like looking at rocks and soil to figure out what the climate was like in deeper in the deeper past you know Hmm. deeper time um And it was the hottest year by a lot, I should say. Like, it blew the previous record out of the water by two-tenths of a degree Celsius, which is about four-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit. It's a huge margin.
6: Describe why two-tenths of a degree Celsius, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, is a huge margin.
22: Right, right. So the Earth is really sensitive to temperature changes. And one way I like to think about it is it's sort of like the human body, like... If your body temperature goes up even a couple degrees, you go from healthy to having a fever, you know, yeah. being sick. The Earth is similar. So tenths of a degree, they add up really quickly. And this new data, it shows that 2023 was almost 1.5 degrees Celsius hotter than temperatures in the late 1800s. That's, you know, when humans started releasing a lot of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. degrees Celsius, that is more than two and a half degrees Fahrenheit. And the planet is showing those sort of signs of fever of being too hot with deadly heat waves and other extreme weather. 1.5
6: degrees Celsius is a really important number because people might remember under the Paris Climate Agreement, the world agreed to try to stay under that number to avoid the worst effects of climate change. Are you saying we're on the cusp of hitting or have already hit that limit?
22: No. uh, Sort of no. (laughs) Uh, I wish it was a more emphatic no. So hitting 1.5 degrees in one year is not the same as crossing that threshold in a sustained way. That's the good news. You know, like multiple years in a row at 1.5 degrees, that kind of sustained warming is what's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Warming at that level would cause runaway sea level rise and mass extinction of plants and animals later this century. Those really catastrophic events. We are not there yet. But... Scientists warn that we are on track to get there, to hit that kind of sustained warming in the next decade if we don't rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, you know, by burning way less oil, gas and coal.
6: And so now we're in 2024. Is that likely to be another record-breaking year?
22: It could be. It could be. It's a definite possibility. Some of the ocean heat that helped drive the record-breaking heat last year is still happening, at least in the first part of this year. Um, but, we're, you know, what really matters more than one hot year or even two hot years is the bigger trend, right? So zoom out, the last eight years were the hottest eight years on record. The next eight years are going to be even hotter. You know, another way to think about this is that 2023 was the hottest year that anyone alive has experienced. But if the earth keeps warming at this rate, we'll look back on 2023 as one of the coolest years that we ever lived through.
6: And PR's Rebecca Hersher, thank you.
22: Thanks.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Most of the goods we buy get to where they need to go on the back of a truck or a train, but about 5% of cargo in the United States is transported over water, including in the Great Lakes. Many of the ports and waterways there are aging and need updating. And that's something leaders in Rust Belt cities are hoping to do with $17 billion from the Biden administration. From Chicago, reporter Yulian Haida has this story.
23: The international port of Illinois is on the far south side of Chicago. Chicago. It's a vast landscape of asphalt, hosting a beehive of forklifts. And on a late fall day, workers sort pallets of lumber fresh off of ships from Canada.
5: They could be going to Home Depot, Menards. They could be going to uh, maybe a, a construction company.
23: That's Eric Varela, the port's executive director. In addition to lumber, the big ships that travel through the Great Lakes also drop off towering, loose piles of iron ore, gravel and salt. Those goods used to mean big business, especially at this port when it opened in 1959. Now, a majority of the docks here sit vacant. Varela thinks it's because this 1,800-acre port has hardly seen any major capital improvements in decades. I mean, you could see the condition of it over here, right? Nearly half of the 1,000-yard-long dock is partially collapsed into the river that connects to Lake Michigan. You cannot put a crane there or unload things safely over there. And it just kind of gets worse as you go down the dock wall here. He's hoping to get a slice of the new federal funds earmarked for maritime infrastructure. It's not an easy case to make. A congressional report issued last spring shows the amount of domestic cargo on the Great Lakes, like coal and iron ore, has dropped by half since this port opened. DePaul University professor Joseph Schwederman researches transportation. He thinks there's a great deal of untapped potential on the Great Lakes to relieve COVID-era supply chain disruptions. He also thinks shippers need to think more creatively to bring in other commodities like machinery, electronics, and pharmaceuticals on the water.
1: Truck drivers are in short
2: supply. Railroads are kind of maxed right now. So when you can Ship vast quantities on a boat, you know, you simplify things greatly. Marine vessels are so fuel efficient,
23: they're so low cost, the bulk they can handle is uh, is second to none. Other ports along the Great Lakes, like Cleveland and Duluth, have invested millions to move those types of valuable goods. Both cities have even recently begun regularly scheduled sailings directly to Europe. That's led several other cities to compete for federal funding to build facilities to seamlessly move containers from ships onto trains and trucks. Critics say that the long-distance potential might still be limited, though. Most lakes are connected with old locks, which freeze up in the winter. At the port of Detroit, before the sailing season ended, Captain Scott Skripchak said he's not discouraged. It's kind of an exciting time in the Great Lakes. He sees a renewed interest in shipping, especially if infrastructure investment can extend the season and open up new types of jobs. We're starting
4: to turn our attention back to the waterways. It's going to take some time. It's going to
6: take a lot of money to do it. But the pendulum is starting to swing that way, and it's encouraging.
23: As the government looks forward on infrastructure, mariners here say it might also make sense to invest in inland shipping, an industry that's been keeping economies afloat for a long time. For NPR News, I'm Yulian Haida on the banks of the Great Lakes Waterway.
6: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, Donald Trump's immunity hearing coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at howdoyouseetheworld.com. The forecast put on your rain gear and hold
0: on to your hat tonight. should have a drenching rain, some dangerous winds that could cause power outages. A wind advisory is in effect until one tomorrow afternoon. Could have about two to three inches of rain overnight tonight, then an inch or so tomorrow before it all comes to an end. Tomorrow morning could be pretty tough for commuters with downed trees and ponding on the roads. Temperatures possibly reaching 53 degrees tomorrow, which means more melting snow and potentially more flooding. So if you're out right now, it would be a good time to clear off your local storm drain to give all that rain someplace to go. This is 90.9 WBUR, 37 degrees
9: at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, where college-age students and high school grads can experience a unique mixture of friendship, deep personal growth, and fun. Improve confidence while gaining concrete academic and life skills and practicing healthy habits. Spring semester starts January 22nd. SemesterOff.com I'm Scott Tong.
23: Donald Trump is in court this week, arguing he has broad immunity from prosecution. This as his 2024 election campaign heats up and the Iowa caucuses come next week. We'll convene a roundtable of political strategists next time and Here and Now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer.
6: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Are the giants of technology more likely to save humankind or accelerate its end? Naomi Alderman tackles that question in her new novel, The Future. Her last novel, The Power, was a bestseller that became a series on Amazon about girls developing electrical powers. This one tackles the apocalypse. Naomi Alderman, welcome back to All Things Considered.
24: It's great to be here.
6: Some of your main characters seem like thinly veiled versions of Elon (laughs) Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, and the like. What made you decide to look at the tech giants of today through this apocalyptic
24: lens? I just want to say for legal reasons, they are definitely (laughs) not identifiable as anybody who could sue me with one of their many billions of dollars.
6: Duly noted. Yeah.
22: Uh,
24: So I have worked in technology for many years. um, And I think over the past 20 years or so, those of us who have been working in technology all that time have seen it go from the little kind of upstart industry that could, that can really bring people together and make a difference into, oh now it's enormous mega corporations that mm. don't seem to be interested in really helping the world so certainly that's been in my mind for a while in 2017 i along with lots of other people read uh, there was a brilliant piece in the new yorker about uh, the tech billionaires building bunkers to oh, help yeah. them survive in new zealand yeah.
6: and elsewhere <laughs>
24: right and i think everybody read that and went oh Um,
6: Yeah, what about us? What about everyone else? Right,
24: right. What about us? Now, number one, fundamentally evil. Number two, there is no arc that you can get on and you can escape and everybody else will die and you'll be fine. Because fundamentally, the living through that and deciding to do that instead of using your billions and billions of dollars to help people is what will ultimately destroy you.
6: Okay, so this book immerses us in just ahead of the curve tech and also immerses us in a lot of ancient stories. There is indigenous knowledge. There are ancient Greek references. One story that comes up more than any other is from the Bible. It's the story of Lot and his family. And this is a tale that involves destruction of the city of Sodom. There is incredible sexual violence. His wife turns into a pillar of salt. Why was this story in particular on your mind?
24: When I heard about these billionaires building their bunkers, I immediately thought of Lot. So this is a story that is about how you cannot escape from a terrible situation. If you think that, oh, no, I'm powerful, I can escape, I can go to my bunker, I'm going to be all right, you just have to know that you take it with you. Hmm. On a more broad level, I think... Bible stories, particularly the stories of Genesis, I grew up reading them in the original Hebrew because I grew up very religious Jewish. And it seems to me that those stories are the foundations of what we might call Western civilization now. And we have sort of seeded them to religious education. Hmm. So you learn those stories if you have a strong biblical Schooling where you're maybe taught that all of this is literally true. But actually, they're incredibly important stories.
6: So, like everybody can talk about the lesson of Icarus, don't fly too close to the sun. But unless you're religious, you don't know the lesson of Lot.
24: Correct. Yes. So this is our culture. It doesn't just belong to people who are biblical literalists. These are treasure troves of insight into human psychology, written by people who really did know people who lived in caves. And understand what happens when a whole city gets destroyed. And I think it would be a good idea for us to take advantage of the culture that's been passed down to us.
6: You have a gift, much like your mentor, Margaret Atwood, of imagining a world that is just close enough to our own to feel plausible and just different enough to be interesting. You said that this book was actually informed by a trip that Atwood encouraged you to take to the Arctic. But I wonder, is finding that version of the near future, intuitive? Or do you have to, like, adjust the dial sort of like hot and cold taps to get it just right?
24: There is a process that I do pretty much all the time of trying to figure out how things could be different to what they currently are and how far I can stretch it before it starts to feel implausible to me. I find that delightful. Hmm. Just there, there are so many worlds that are so close to where we are right now.
6: There's a paragraph at the very end of the book that to me almost sounds like a manifesto. It doesn't give anything away. Um, Will you read from page 414?
24: I will, and I would also say that, just to clangingly name drop, this was certainly inspired by a conversation that I was lucky enough to have with Ursula Le Guin uh, a couple of years before she died. Hmm. Nothing can be permanently settled or solved no state is perfect, no utopia exists but that it leaves someone out. All we can be is alert, like Fox, to the changing winds. To ask ourselves, in each new situation, what would we hate anyone to do to us? And who have we forgotten? To exist in motion, falling forward, trying to bend our own histories toward what is fair and kind what is sensible and good. We will keep failing, but final success was never the point.
6: Naomi Alderman, is that your personal view?
24: Yes, I think the idea that we could reach a point where all human problems are solved is um, the kind of illusion that stops us from trying to do anything. And fine, some problems are just going to have to be moved around like a bubble of air underneath the wallpaper. (laughs) Sometimes it will be here. Sometimes it will be there. But even that work of noticing who we've left out, trying to bring them in, and again and again, that is utopia. The process is the destination. Living by those values is what we have.
6: Do you find that reassuring or frustrating?
24: I find it very reassuring. All right, I'm going to tell you a bit of um, Jewish stuff. Please. (laughs) So, I grew up very religious, and there's a a saying, which means, it's not up to you to complete the work, but neither are you free to refrain from it. Which is, that we don't have to worry ourselves about some destination far in the future, all the problems are solved. No, just start today, go outside your house and pick up a piece of litter. Start where you are and do something. And if we all do that, things will be immeasurably better. And uh, some final state of perfection is is not the point. If anything, evolution or God or whatever thought that perfection was important, we wouldn't have ended up so imperfect. So it's all fine. Don't let the best be the enemy of the good, right?
6: Naomi Alderman, her new book is The Future. It's been so wonderful talking with you, thank you.
24: And you, delightful. I'll have to publish another book so I can come on as quickly as possible.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid. Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com. From the Lodestar Foundation, Inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday evening. Tonight at 7 o'clock, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Last year, she laid out goals for growing Boston's population and controlling soaring housing costs. Listen live at 7 o'clock at 90.9 WBUR as the mayor looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. We'll also have analysis right after the mayor's speech. In sports, Bruins visit the Arizona Coyotes tonight. The puck drops at nine o'clock. The Celtics are off tonight. They host the Minnesota Timberwolves tomorrow. This is WBUR, 37 degrees at 459.
25: I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Donald Trump appeared in federal court today. At issue is whether the former president is immune from prosecution for his actions encouraging rioters at the Capitol on January
12: 6th. To authorize the prosecution of a president for his official acts would open a Pandora's box from which this nation may never recover.
0: This is All Things Considered. How the lawyers' arguments were received coming up. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, 22 years ago this week, the U.S. opened the Guantanamo Bay prison where suspects considered enemy combatants in the war on terror were sent. We'll hear from the Center for Torture Victims about how Guantanamo is still operating despite calls for its closure. And weather advisories on three fronts this evening and tomorrow morning covering most of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and northern Connecticut. The latest from our meteorologist, Daniel Noyce, is coming up. It's 501.
26: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After days of silence about whether it led up to his hospitalization, doctors at Walter Reed Medical Center say Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was being treated for prostate cancer. The 70-year-old Austin underwent a procedure in December but then developed a urinary tract infection and was hospitalized. NPR's Tom Bowman says not clear as why it took so long for anyone, including the White House, to be told.
8: The question is why didn't he inform the White House on December 20- Twenty-second that he was having this procedure, and the fact that he was under a general anesthetic. And again, he did notify his deputy to take over responsibilities of the office, but there was clearly a breakdown in communication. The Pentagon's going to do a review about what happened here, but there are still many,
26: many questions unanswered. NPR's Tom Bowman. Austin's hospitalization was kept from the White House and the president for days, though President Biden said he retains faith in Austin. A federal appeals court in Washington will decide whether former President Donald Trump can claim immunity from his efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports today's hearing comes just days before the Iowa caucuses, the first big test of Trump's political fate in the run-up to the November election.
27: Instead of campaigning in Iowa, Trump chose to appear at today's hearing to argue his case. Justin Crow, a political science professor at Williams College, says Trump is attempting to turn his legal liabilities into political assets.
23: He's going to clearly use that as much as he can. And with Uh, charges against him um, piling up over the next few months, he's going to have ample opportunity to do this. He could just campaign in Iowa today uh, or in New Hampshire, but instead he's going to use it as an opportunity to campaign in D.C.
27: Attorneys for Trump have argued that he cannot be prosecuted for his actions because he was working in his official capacity as president to, quote, ensure election integrity. Windsor-Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
26: Authorities in Russia have detained another U.S. citizen. They're accusing him of drug offenses. More from NPR's Philip Reeves.
12: The detainee is Robert Woodland. A Moscow court says he faces drugs-related charges with a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. It's detained him for two months. Local reports say Woodland was born in Russia. As a toddler, he was adopted from an orphanage by Americans. He returned to Russia as an adult to reunite with his birth family. His Facebook page says he's been teaching English there. Russia is widely accused in the West of detaining U.S. citizens for use as bargaining chips in prisoner exchanges. Those held include ex-U.S. Marine Paul Whelan and Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gushkovich. Both face spying allegations they deny. Philip Reeves, NPR News.
26: A mixed close on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 157 points. The Nasdaq was up 13 points. The S&P 500 lost 7 points. This is NPR.
0: You're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A community health leader says patients should be spared the brunt of new cuts to mass health. That's the program that offers health insurance to lower-income people in the Commonwealth. The belt tightening from the governor's office comes in response to months of lower-than-expected state tax collections. WBUR's Rob Lane has the report.
8: Governor Maura Healy is trimming nearly $300 million budgeted for certain mass health provider reimbursements. Michael Curry of the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers tells WBUR's Radio Boston he's glad
23: the state isn't
20: touching program eligibility or benefits. We have to sort all of this through, but I think the bottom line is that the administration chose the option that hurt the consumer, the patient, the resident least. Along with the reduction in MassHealth funding, Healy announced
8: dozens of other smaller cuts yesterday. The governor is trying to bridge a projected budget shortfall of roughly a billion dollars. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
0: The three highest-earning state employees in Massachusetts took in more than a million dollars last year. State data show the top earner was UMass's head coach of basketball, Francisco Martin. He makes more than $1.6 million. The top 22 earners, in fact, all work for UMass. The highest earner outside the UMass system works for the state chief medical examiner's office and earned more than $500,000. The lineup for this year's Boston Calling Music Festival is out. Pop superstar Ed Sheeran, country singer Tyler Childers, and Las Vegas rockers uh, The Killers will headline the three-day music festival Memorial Day weekend. Also on the bill, Megan Thee Stallion, Fish founder Trey Anastasio, and neo-soul singer Leon Bridges. Tickets go on sale on Thursday. We've got a storm bearing down on the region, maybe starting with snow, but turning to a wind-driven rain. The rain should be really heavy overnight tonight, anywhere from one to three inches on the ground by the time it all ends tomorrow. Rain moving out by daybreak tomorrow, but the wind should stick around. High temperatures tomorrow reaching the mid-50s, making for even more flooding. 37 degrees in Boston at 5.06.
17: WBUR supporters include the Sci-Sims Foundation since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm
6: Ari Shapiro in Washington. An inmate is missing at a prison in Ecuador, and now the whole country is in a state of internal armed conflict. We'll hear more about the gangster accused of masterminding the murder of a politician and the chaos that's followed his escape in a few minutes.
10: But first, former President Donald Trump appeared in a federal courthouse in Washington, D.C. today for arguments about whether he is immune from prosecution for his attempts to stay in power after the 2020 election, which he lost. His lawyer, John Sauer, made the case.
12: To authorize the prosecution of a president for his official acts would open a pandora's box from which this nation may never recover.
10: NPR justice correspondent Carrie Johnson was at the courthouse and she's here now to talk more about the oral arguments. Hi Carrie. Hi Sasha. Carrie, if the appeals court agrees with Trump, it would mean this case related to January 6th would end. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. And so then how did Trump's arguments go over with the judges?
28: You know, all three judges at different points pushed back. I think that's because the implication for finding that a former president cannot be prosecuted for federal crimes, those implications are pretty huge. Here's one of the judges, Florence Pan.
25: In your view, could a president sell pardons or sell military secrets? Those are official acts. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to
22: assassinate a political rival?
28: And Trump's lawyer, John Sauer, basically said former presidents cannot be charged with crimes unless they're impeached and convicted first. Trump, of course, was impeached by the House, but not convicted by the Senate after the siege on the Capitol. Another judge, Karen Henderson, basically said presidents take an oath to faithfully execute the laws, So the idea that a a president could get away scot-free with violating those same laws just didn't make sense to her.
10: This was Trump's first time back at the courthouse since his arraignment last August. What did he say or do? Donald Trump entered the courtroom
28: only a few minutes before the argument began. He just said one thing he asked his lawyers, is this where I sit? And Trump took notes, sometimes he passed them to members of his legal team. The former president didn't say anything after the hearing, but he spoke afterward at a local hotel, arguing his prosecution is politically motivated, even though there's no evidence, none, that the current President Joe Biden played any role in this case.
10: The man leading the prosecution, Special Counsel Jack Smith, also showed up at the courthouse. What did his team
12: argue?
28: James Pierce made the argument for the Justice Department and the Special Counsel team. Here's a bit of what he had to say.
12: The president has a unique constitutional role, but he
6: is not above the law. The former president enjoys no immunity from criminal prosecution.
28: Pierce said it would be a frightening future if a former president could avoid criminal sanctions only because he wasn't impeached and convicted by the Senate.
10: So Kerry, play this out for us. What are the different ways the judges might rule here?
28: First, they could rule it's not the right time for Trump to appeal, that he needs to wait until after any trial happens, though both the Justice Department and Trump want the court to decide this now. Second, the court could side with the Justice Department and pave the way for Trump to file yet another appeal, perhaps eventually getting all the way to the Supreme Court. And finally, these judges could agree with Donald Trump, and that would bring an end to this case, and potentially the case from the District Attorney in
10: Georgia, too. But the clock is ticking. We're now less than one week away from the Iowa caucuses, and voters are only weeks from heading to the polls in many more states. So when might the court issue a ruling on on Trump's immunity, and why does that matter?
28: Yeah, the appeal court could rule at any time. Right now, this D.C. trial, which was supposed to start March 4th, is on pause. What's at stake is whether this trial or any of the Trump trials will happen before the presidential election.
10: That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Carrie, thank you for following this. My pleasure.
6: Poland is one of Ukraine's strongest allies in its struggle with Russia. But a trucking dispute has emerged between Polish and Ukrainian drivers. And a protest at the border is holding up thousands of trucks. NPR's Alyssa Nadwarni reports from the Polish frontier.
25: For two months, Laszek Stasik, a Polish business owner, has been manning the night shift at the blockade at the Dorohusk border crossing in northeast Poland. It's just after 9 p.m and he and two other Polish protesters are finally allowing five trucks to pass their blockade. They do this only once an hour. Military and humanitarian aid can pass and don't count, but the rest, they have to wait. On this night, just before New Year's, about a thousand trucks are stuck at the border, stretching back more than 20 miles into Poland. This is a fight for our existence, Stasik tells us. His yellow reflective vest catching the light from the headlights of trucks at the front of the line. He owns a small Polish trucking company with five truck rigs. He and other protesters are outraged over the European Union's decision to remove limits on how many Ukrainian drivers and businesses can enter Poland and the EU. His business is suffering, he tells us. He can't compete with the influx of Ukrainian drivers flooding the market. Ukrainian drivers act like they're members of the EU, he says. They take away our bread. They take away our work. Before the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, the EU used a permit system to keep the number of Polish and Ukrainian drivers crossing this shared border about equal. But the EU suspended the permit system as a way to support the Ukrainian economy and move goods, like grain, into the rest of Europe. The number of trucks heading in and out of Ukraine shot up, the majority of those being driven by Ukrainians. Stasik and other Polish protesters say they want that permit system restored. There are no toilets, no showers, says Alexander Nekrasov. He's been waiting nearly two weeks to cross the border.
16: There is war
25: going on at home, and we are stuck here, he says. While they've been waiting to cross, Russia launched a number of large aerial attacks, killing dozens. And these Ukrainian drivers have been following the news closely on social media. Stanislav Kolisnik, who is driving a truck full of metal plates for protective vests, pulls up a video of the aftermath of one of those attacks in the city of Dnipro. We are willing to drive to these places that are dangerous, he says. The Polish drivers, they just want to go to western Ukraine, where it's safer. Polish protesters have been meeting with the part of the Polish government that deals with transport to try to resolve these complaints. But Poland's new prime minister, Donald Tusk, he said any resolution to this blockade must come from the European Union, which lifted the permit system. Ukrainian drivers told us they're running out of food, money, and water. Serhiy Strelak, who's been waiting for 14 days, opens up his cab to show us his living quarters behind his seat. There's a small gas stove, a mini fridge, and a bed with blankets. His son, Yevgeny, who drives for the same Ukrainian transport company, has the truck directly in front of his. You're telling me this wasn't planned, that you're right in front of each other. Nee. It was not planned, they say. Does that make it better? But being together in line has made a bad situation just a little bit better. It's been more lonely for Alexander Chalamednik, who is carrying factory parts and is just a few trucks from the front of the line.
23: (laughs) He's been here for
25: 13 days, but he's at the end of his journey. He's been dreaming of the hot, proper meal he'll have when he's finally back in Ukraine, and maybe some rest before he picks up the next load.
22: You're gonna do this all over again?
25: (laughs) Of course, he says. I've got a family, and I need the money. And then it's time. He turns on his engine, and with a wave and a honk, he's off. It's finally his turn to cross. Alyssa Nadwarni, NPR News on the Ukrainian-Polish border.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston, and we've got a storm on the way. It won't look much like the one we had over the weekend. Here's the latest with meteorologist Danielle Noyce. And Danielle, over the weekend, it looked like the storm was mostly white this afternoon and tonight. It looks a little white, but mostly wet. huh?
18: Exactly. This one, Lisa, you're right, is a different sort of uh, kind of beast here as it moves in. Although it is snowing right now is just checking some of the observations. We've got mile and three quarter visibility in Worcester and Fitchburg's got a mix and Orange and Jaffrey. So outside of 495, um, this is going to be a little burst of snow before we change over to rain.
0: And tell us about the rain.
18: The rain is uh, closing in on the 128 belt. So I expect it to start in the city of Boston. I'd say uh, between now and, you know, the next hour or so it fills in for eastern Massachusetts. So it rains, and it rains hard overnight tonight. There are going to be some downpours. I wouldn't even rule out an embedded thunderstorm. It is in and out pretty quickly, though. I expect the back edge to move in right around or just after 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. There may be a shower after that, but the steadiest rain is midnight to 7 a.m.
0: And when you say steadiest rain, the amounts that you're thinking of to fall would be about what?
18: Yeah, I think like one to three inches. This is going to be, you know, a heavy rain for several hours. So one to three inch in general. And then, of course, north and west of Boston, where we've had the heaviest snow from this past weekend, that's going to weigh things down. Um, ice and clogged drains going to be a concern. I think there'll be a number of street flooding concerns and urban flooding. Um, so localized flooding, that's why the flood watch is up through tomorrow afternoon.
0: Okay, talk about the wind.
18: The wind is going to be howling oh it's going to be uh one of the bigger things i think people will remember from this storm because this is not just a storm lisa where at the coast it gusts this is for most of southern new england we're going to see gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour this is not a nor'easter it's a southeaster. so it's a southeast wind this event will gust 50 to 60 for cape ann Uh, the South Shore, interior southeastern Massachusetts, and the Cape. So I do expect scattered outages and some damage to result from that. The strongest wind will also coincide with the heaviest rain, so about midnight till 7 a.m.
0: And what is uh, the toughest thing to predict about this storm? I mean, it sounds like you have a pretty good handle on when the rain will come and go, the winds Mm -hmm. themselves. Is that a little bit more uh, difficult to predict?
18: Yeah, I would say the winds are slightly more tricky. I think the bigger thing is the impact from the wind, right? You know, sometimes we see winds 40 to 50 miles per hour and it doesn't cause much damage, which is great. Other times we see it, you know, even if you get a few isolated gusts over 50 and it caused more widespread damage out there. The tricky part with this is with the snow that fell over the weekend, you know, it's weighing down some of the trees and branches, the ground is wet from the snow and some of the rain. How much damage is that actually going to cause? I do anticipate a number of outages and I think those outage numbers will probably spike Uh, through early tomorrow morning before going back down after that because of the strong wind.
0: And uh, tomorrow's commute in the morning should be like what?
18: I think there'll be some lingering flooding. So, you know, if you're an early morning commuter, I would say, you know, I would kind of recommend waiting towards the tail end of the commuter, you know, at least uh, for a short period until the worst of the rain is over because the heaviest rain comes in and then the back edge comes through fast. But obviously, takes a while before the water recedes you know low-lying areas things like that so there may be some localized flooding that lingers through the morning hours uh, and then after that the sun actually will break out pretty quickly tomorrow afternoon i also just want to mention that the wind will probably gust 30 to 40 tomorrow which you think okay isn't that bad but for cleanup efforts for those that may need to get up in the trucks and things like that, that'll hamper that just a little bit tomorrow
0: afternoon. Okay, and temperatures in the mid-50s tomorrow with sunshine as if nothing ever happened. Uh, WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce, thank you so much. Thanks, Lisa.
17: WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink Software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com slash MOS. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com.
0: The White House's infrastructure czar is joining President Biden's re-election campaign. We'll hear about what role infrastructure law will play in the election. That's coming up in about 15 minutes here at
17: 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit Explo.org summer.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash npr and from procter and gamble maker of metamucil a fiber supplement containing psyllium a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day more at metamucil.com this is npr
10: from NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer.
6: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Should America's two largest grocery store chains become one? That's the question before U.S. regulators who are reviewing whether to block the merger of Kroger and Albertsons that would shake up the grocery landscape. A decision is expected as soon as this month, as NPR's Alina Seljuk reports.
29: Yeah. Listening to the sounds of this grocery store. It's hard to tell how distinct the store is. In fact, it's a Harris Teeter in Washington, D.C., but it could easily be a Safeway just five blocks away. And maybe soon, they could both belong to one chain.
15: Grocery store mega merger. Kroger and
20: Albertsons. Kroger wants to buy Albertsons. A
29: deal worth almost $25 billion. Kroger is America's biggest supermarket operator. Albertsons is the second biggest. Kroger owns Harris Teeter, Ralph's, Fred Meyer, King Supers. Albertsons has Safeway, Vons, and Acme. Together, they have almost 5,000 stores. But Albertsons' CEO, Vivek Shankaran, makes the case for looking past the size.
17: The marketplace for groceries over the past decade has completely transformed.
29: Shankaran spoke in the Senate soon after the merger was announced in 2022. Both CEOs at the hearing promised lower prices and higher wages. They said their two retail chains together still sell fewer groceries than Walmart or Costco.
17: The best way to compete with megastores like Walmart and highly capitalized online companies like Amazon will be through a merger with Kroger.
29: They also like to emphasize that they offer union jobs in contrast to their rivals. Meanwhile, the union, representing workers at both Kroger and Albertsons, opposes the merger. Concerned about jobs and prices, Mark Perrone is the head of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union.
26: From a contract bargaining standpoint, it would become a little bit more difficult to negotiate a collective bargaining agreements
29: Because the union would face an even bigger, more dominant employer. Some state officials have made similar arguments about farmers and food producers, saying the power the combined Kroger-Albertsons could exert on them could push up prices all around. One big question is how much federal regulators will take all that into account. They have recently signaled they are paying much closer attention to how mergers could hurt suppliers and local workers.
26: But that is that's a relatively new process.
29: And so consumers, he thinks, will remain the focus. The traditional question there is, would the merger leave shoppers in any given area with fewer or worse grocery options? Kroger and Albertsons overlap a lot in the West, and so they tried to preempt that concern by agreeing to divest, or sell off, up to 650 stores. And they found a buyer, a company called CNS Wholesale Grocers. The history of divestitures in the past several years is not great. Kathleen Bradish is with the American Antitrust Institute, which advocates for tougher scrutiny of mergers. She says the divestitures deemed acceptable in the past may no longer convince the Federal Trade Commission. There's a very much increased concern about how well divestitures work. Do they actually restore competition? In fact, a classic example is Albertsons itself. In 2015, when Albertsons bought Safeway, the FTC required a sale of dozens of stores. But within months, one of the buyers filed for bankruptcy, and Albertsons repurchased almost a fifth of those stores on the cheap. Now, several attorneys general have already signaled plans to sue to block Kroger's purchase of Albertsons, and soon the feds will decide whether they might do that as well. Alina Seluch, NPR News.
10: It was 22 years ago this week that the U.S. opened a military prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to hold suspected terrorists after the 9-11 attacks. That prison remains open today. It still holds 30 men, many of whom have never been criminally charged, and there has still been no 9-11 trial. So this week, a group of nearly 100 advocacy organizations sent a letter to President Biden urging him to finally close the facility. One of them is the Center for Victims of Torture. And its director of global policy and advocacy, Scott Ream, is with us. Scott, thanks for making time.
12: Thanks for having me, Sasha.
10: Resistance to closing Guantanamo has generally been Republican-led, but that's fading the the further away we get from 9-11. So why do you think the Biden administration hasn't made closing Gitmo more of a priority?
12: I think it's largely been a lack of courage and a lack of priority. There weren't nearly enough transfers out of Guantanamo, The administration released a handful of men earlier in the year, and then the transfer stopped. These are men that all of the agencies in the U.S. government with a significant national security function have agreed unanimously should be released. They no longer need to continue to be held. Their detention doesn't serve a national security purpose. In most cases, these decisions were made years ago.
10: We should note that these are often referred to as forever prisoners, people held in indefinite detention, even when, as you said, they're sometimes cleared for release, but still are held because the administration is trying to find countries to take them. So they languish.
12: That's right. I think it's hard to imagine that the State Department couldn't find a single country in the world willing to receive some of these cleared for release men. And so it appears they're continuing to languish at Guantanamo because that's what senior most administration officials chose to do.
10: One big obstacle to closing Guantanamo is these forever prisoners languishing, even though they've been cleared for release. Another big obstacle is that the 9-11 trial is hopelessly gridlocked, years and years of pretrial proceedings that many people think will never lead to a trial. There had been settlement talks underway to try to get the defendants to plead guilty in return for life in prison, what would assumed would be life in prison. But last summer, the Biden administration derailed that process by rejecting some proposed conditions of the deal. What did you think when you heard that?
12: this has been called the most important criminal case in U.S. history. And yet for 16 years, the case has been spinning its wheels haplessly, this kind of rusty hamster wheel of injustice, and it's still years away even from a trial. A plea agreement is realistically the only way to resolve the case with some measure of justice and finality for victim family members at this point and that's because the prosecution is built largely on quicksand almost all of the government's evidence that it would use in order to convict the men is based on torture why did the administration reject a plea deal as with most things guantanamo the answer is probably political more specifically uh I would guess a fear that there would be some public opposition to a plea agreement. If that's the reason it is as misguided as it is disheartening, there will always be mixed reaction to anything that involves Guantanamo. There can't be perfect solutions to closing a place that's been so broken in so many complex ways for so long. It really comes down to the administration mustering some courage to make good on the president's promise.
10: Scott, three previous presidents have not shut down Guantanamo. How hopeful or not are you that your letter will actually influence the Biden administration's decision-making on Guantanamo?
12: I certainly hope it will. If this is the path we're on, then I'm pessimistic. But it doesn't have to be the path we're on. This could change tomorrow, and I'm hopeful that um, that it will. And we'll do everything we can you know, to try to convince the administration that that's the right thing to do.
10: Scott Reem is Director of Global Policy and Advocacy at the Center for Victims of Torture. Thank you.
6: Thanks so much for having me, Sasha. This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 25 minutes. Researchers in the South want people to report monarch butterfly sightings this winter because the butterflies seem to be skipping the long migration to breeding grounds in Mexico. Tracking the Monarch, coming up at about 5.55. The Dow dropped about four-tenths of a percent today. S&P recovered from some earlier losses. It closed down more than a tenth of a percent. And the Nasdaq had a small gain today of just about a tenth of a percent. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.30. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time
30: comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into
11: your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Boston's How Do You See the World experience with the Maparium Globe. Visit and explore stories about global progress. Tickets at HowDoYouSeeTheWorld.com.
23: I'm Scott Tong. Donald Trump is in court this week, arguing he has broad immunity from prosecution. This as his 2024 election campaign heats up and the Iowa caucuses come next week. We'll convene a roundtable of political strategists next time and Here and Now. Listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
15: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Congress is back in session for the new year and lawmakers are once again facing a tight funding deadline to keep the government running. Congressional leaders have reached a deal for $886 billion in funding for defense spending but have a long way to go to win majority support in both chambers. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the administration remains optimistic.
11: The president continues uh, to believe that we need to get to a bipartisan uh, agreement to to really deal with the border security
10: issue. There has been a productive conversation uh, on the Senate side Republicans and Democrats, so we are hopeful. Uh, This is a president that is optimistic, as you know. We are hopeful that we will get to a bipartisan agreement.
15: The federal government will hit the first of two shutdown deadlines on January 19th. Congress is also looking at a potential supplemental spending plan that could provide aid to Israel and Ukraine as well as address border security. Vice President Kamala Harris is on the campaign trail in the battleground state of Georgia talking about voting rights with advocates and elected leaders. Raul Bali of member station WABE reports.
7: Vice President Harris calls Georgia ground zero for intentional efforts to make it more difficult to vote. She talked about barriers she sees to voting, including attacks on election workers.
11: Before coming into this room, spent some time with election workers who have been working here in Georgia and the stories that I've heard here and in other parts of our country are so troubling.
7: Some attendees talked about how every vote in Georgia is going to matter in this year's presidential election. In 2020, President Joe Biden and Vice President Harris won Georgia by less than 12,000 votes. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta.
15: Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street, the Dow down about four-tenths of a percent. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Utility National Grid says customers in Massachusetts should prepare just in case they lose power from the incoming storm. That's because expected high winds could pull down trees onto power lines. Nicola Medalova is with National Grid New England.
7: We are expecting this to be a multi-day event. For, for us, this is what we call um, a type 3 event. Um, as I say, that's something around 140,000 customers out at peak and up to 72 hours um, to restore at least 95% of customers.
0: National Grid has more than 800 line crews ready to restore power. She reminds customers that restoration work can only begin after the high winds die down, which would likely be tomorrow afternoon. Undocumented students in Massachusetts can now apply for need-based financial aid to pay for college. The state is launching a new Massachusetts-specific financial aid form. The application serves as an alternate to the federal form known as FAFSA, for which undocumented students are ineligible. This summer, lawmakers granted in-state tuition and financial aid to students regardless of their immigration status. More than 2,000 acres of forest in Lynn, Saugus, and Lynnfield is protected from future development. The State Department of Conservation has issued a restriction on the land. Uh, it has most development projects in the forested area of Lynn Woods. It bars them. Commissioner Brian Enrico says the preservation agreement was years in the making.
8: There have been threats of development proposals, including, uh, I believe, a golf course
20: and
2: uh, rerouting Route 95. So the protection of this land and preserving access to parks and open spaces, especially in environmental justice communities like Lynn, is a a top priority.
0: Lynn Woods has trails for hiking, biking, and skiing. The forecast is next.
9: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at LizLinder.com.
0: Should have a drenching rain, some dangerous winds overnight tonight, possibly causing power outages. The wind advisory is in effect until one tomorrow afternoon. Could have about two to three inches of rain before it all ends. Tomorrow morning could be tough for commuters with downed trees and ponding on some of the roads. Temperatures reaching 53 degrees tomorrow. Might even see some sunshine by the time the afternoon rolls around. This is WBUR, 37 degrees in
13: Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and company events, with online ordering and 24-7 live support. Learn more at EasyCater.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR.
6: It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
13: And I'm
30: Elsa Chang in Tainan, Taiwan, which, you know, hasn't been the seat of government in Taiwan in quite a while, but there is a very good case to be made that this city is still the culinary capital of this entire island. A lot of cooks in Tainan begin their days right here in a market called Shui Xian Gong market. And if you look out at all the displays of shiny orange and silver fish, bright rows of Glistening pork ribs and overflowing crates of dragon fruit and guava. What you really see in this place is a portrait of all the forces, both indigenous and from external colonizers, that have shaped modern Taiwan. So, to better understand the Dutch, the Chinese, and the Japanese imprinted on the Taiwanese palate, we met up with Clarissa Wei and Ivy Chen, who've just written a cookbook called Made in Taiwan.
18: Hi. Hi. Now that
30: title declares something. Even though about 90% of the people here have Chinese ancestry, they have forged a cuisine that is all their own. I grew up where my mom cooked both Taiwanese and Chinese food, so I kind of thought both cuisines were the same thing when I was a kid. Clarissa,
27: how would you explain the difference between Taiwanese and Chinese food? So in terms of like cooking techniques and ingredients, it's very similar. Um, but Taiwanese food is quite distinct in that we have our own pantry items that are unique to Taiwan. Uh, Taiwanese cuisine tends to be more sweet. Um, here in Tainan, the food is very very sweet because this used to be a sugar cane producing hub, and when Taiwan was a Japanese colony, Taiwan um, produced most of the sugar for the Japanese Empire. And at one point, like two thirds of all Taiwanese families were in the sugar cane producing business. So it was a huge part of our culture.
30: To show us this Taiwanese love of sugar, Ivy leads us to a stand full of bright pink sweets. It's a fixture at this market.
31: Okay. They established 100 years. You almost. have been here 100 years, 100 years? Third generation.
30: Yeah. Ivy hands me a hot pink yeah. gooey so pancake.
31: That's angu
30: It's called angu They're decorated to look like the top of a turtle shell. I want to try angdawa, red bean.
27: (laughs) Angdawa.
30: Oh, I love how sticky this is. That is from sticky rice, which is a short grain rice. Clarissa says short grain rice had to fight its way onto this island after Chinese settlers had been growing long grain for centuries.
27: When the Japanese came, they sort of craved their short grain rice, it's the rice you have in sushi, which is really sticky, but short grain rice does not grow well in a subtropical climate, so they spent 10 years trying to cultivate a short grain rice on San, which is a mountain hill-ish area in Taipei. After 10 years, they finally succeeded, and that has become our rice of choice.
30: And because it's so laborious to cultivate rice, it was deemed a worthy offering to the gods and ancestors. That's why people will take sticky rice sweets like angu gui to temples, such as one just steps away from this vendor. It's called Shui Xian Gong Temple, you know you will often see temples and food markets appear
31: side by side in taiwan during the worship time two three hours people are hungry so they are hanging out in the neighborhood they're looking for food and that's how many small vendors gathering in the neighborhood and start doing their business i love how like mopeds
30: and motorcycles and scooters are just driving through the market
27: yeah stands. it's chaos
30: Shui Shen Gong Temple is hundreds of years old. It's dedicated to the water gods, and paintings above the entrance pay homage to the ocean that surrounds this island.
27: Yeah, you see one man pulling an octopus from the sea. Yeah, it looks like it, or a squid and all. To the left, there's like an old man fishing.
30: And then, I spot one of my favorite delicacies of the ocean, fish balls. Oh, it smells so good.
31: What are the different fish here? They have Frango fish ball, they have shrimp ball, so on the top left, that's the milkfish. So the milkfish is very important agriculture in Tainan area. Milkfish. Milkfish. And milkfish also
30: has a connection to the Dutch colonization on this island, right, Clarissa?
27: Yeah, so um, the milkfish, it's been here for centuries. Um, the indigenous, they their name for it was mata because of their beady eyes. Um, and when the Dutch came, they started the aquaculture industry where they were breeding the milkfish. And it's just become a staple in the Taiwanese diet ever since.
30: To plunge further into the aquaculture of this island, we head closer to the shore, to another neighborhood in Tainan called Anping. You can see groups of people shucking oysters on street corners here, Taiwanese oysters. Chinese migrants started growing these along the west coast of this island more than 200 years ago. And these oysters, they show up in a dish my mom used to cook all through my childhood, oa jen. We order some at a small street restaurant.
27: This place is called Old Dutch Fort Oyster Omelette. And behind us is another Dutch fort. So, oa Jian is
30: basically an omelette that's studded with Taiwanese oysters, which are smaller than those you might see in North America. The omelets thickened with sweet potato starch and then slathered in a sweet and tangy sauce. I take a bite and... Man, now I'm wondering if my mom's been cooking oa Jian wrong my entire childhood. (laughs) This tastes so different. So as we're like looking at all the different ingredients in this oyster omelet, what do you think these ingredients tell us about the island?
27: Yeah, so I really like this dish because it describes what Taiwanese food was 200-300 years ago. It's very simple and like the bulk of it really is sweet potato starch because sweet potatoes thrive. There's a little bit of egg for protein but not much. And then oysters which grow in abundance because we're located right next to the shore. Some bean sprouts and some greens for texture. And it looks very gooey and gelatinous. Um, but this is very much poor man's food. It's very filling as well because of all the starch. And this isn't a dish you associate with um, Chinese food at all. It's something that is very, very Taiwanese and unique to taiwan
30: and i totally grew up thinking this was chinese so this is i'm just kind of like <laughs> whoa right now <laughs> and understanding what distinguishes chinese food from taiwanese food well that was something even ivy slowly discovered on her own and she had been a cooking instructor for years her students are usually from other parts of the
31: world my customer keep asking me what is the taiwanese food and what is the chinese food what's the difference. So then I need to ask myself. So I study and I figure out. Oh so that was a process for you. It's not like you knew the answer right away. What is the difference between Taiwanese and Chinese? Yeah I can tell but I never think that people will ask me that way. I need to give a definition about the Chinese food and Taiwanese food.
30: Here's the thing though. There can't be a black and white definition of Taiwanese food, but Clarissa and Ivy argue the food is unique. The flavors, the produce, the seafood, they are the historical record of colonialism and migration on this island. And that's why they say this island's cuisine deserves to stand on its own.
6: This story was produced by Mallory Yu and Janaki Mehta. Patrick Watananan was the editor. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
10: The White House infrastructure czar is stepping down. Former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu was tapped with carrying out President Biden's signature legislative achievement, the $1 trillion infrastructure law. Landrieu isn't going far. He'll help lead Biden's re-election campaign.
21: I'm going to spend a good bit of my time uh, making sure that the president gets re-elected and promoting defending the president and helping, you know, talk about ways we can save democracy. And I can't do that inside the White House just speaking about infrastructure.
10: Our co-host Scott Detrow talked with Landrew about his decision to join the campaign and whether accomplishments like the infrastructure law could help Biden win a second term.
1: Every time you talk to the press about the infrastructure law, you've said my job is getting the team together, getting the money out the door and telling the story. On the telling the story part of it, are you happy with how that went? Do you feel like that has sunk in? Because on one hand, all this money being spent on projects that people want, and the other hand, You see poll after poll, people feel like the president isn't helping me economically. The president isn't doing stuff that I that I value. I mean, that disconnect has been hard to figure out all along. How do you make sense of it?
21: Well, I don't it's not confusing to me at all. And I'm not surprised by it. Um, When I was running the city of New Orleans and people said, I elected you to do the following three things and I started to do them. It took a while for their feelings to line up with the reality. And they're not always the same things. It doesn't mean that the president's not doing a good job. I do know that when you run for office and you buy ad time or you find ways to communicate with people in real time and an election is coming, that is when they focus on it. And the one thing Joe Biden has that nobody in the history of the country has is the receipts on 40,000 projects in 4,500 communities that when they... Um, Get focused on that. We'll know that. And when the American people start focusing on the choices that they have between chaos and actually getting stuff done and Joe Biden brings the receipts, I feel like we got a really great shot.
1: I hear what you're saying, but I do want to push back a little because the White House was talking for so long about, you know, once we tell the story, people will start to to appreciate all this work that's being done. You've had all these announcements, tons of press all over the place, tunnels highways, Internet, all of these things that affect people's lives and still and I'm not talking about the head to head polls. I'm talking about the questions of, you know, do you feel like uh, the White House is doing something for me? Those types of questions. It hasn't seemed to move the needle in the big picture way. Is it just being eaten up by everything else or are we thinking about it? Wrong?
21: I, I'll push back on you in this way. I'll give you a perfect example. Andy Bashir just ran for reelection in Kentucky in a red state and he got elected. You know what platform he ran on? If you go look at his victory speech, he cites investments from the bipartisan infrastructure law, which indicates that when you're in a campaign and people are paying attention to it and you put enough points behind a story on ways that people learn information, whether it's on TV or digital, and they focus in on it, they really, really like it. So Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of there is a lot of stuff going on in the country that has people – in a state of concern right now so it really doesn't surprise me at all that doesn't mean i don't think it's a serious problem but i think it absolutely is something that will change dramatically next year uh, in a campaign cycle when the public's got to make a choice about what direction they want the country to go in and which one of the people that'll be on the ballot actually got stuff done and improved their lives and which one just talked about it
10: White House infrastructure czar Mitch Landrieu talking with All Things Considered co-host Scott Detrow. Landrieu announced this week that he's joining President Biden's re-election campaign. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin was mysteriously hospitalized, doctors from Walter Reed National Military Center now say he has been treated for prostate cancer. The story and the story of the controversy that caused in Washington coming
11: up in about 15 minutes. WBUR supporters include Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. Premier of Dual Reality. February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic, artsemerson.org. In the
0: forecast, should have a drenching rain, some dangerous winds overnight tonight. Wind advisory is in effect until one tomorrow afternoon. Could have about two to three, maybe in some cases four inches of rain tomorrow before it all ends could have some down trees and some ponding on the roads tomorrow do yourself and your neighbors a favor and clear out any clogged storm drains to let all that water have some place to go it's 549
5: boston's a big music town major acts play the big venues like mgm music hall or td garden but there's also a lot of local talent in smaller theaters and clubs with live music every night Here's another tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. If you want to catch live music around Boston, you've got your pick of genres. There's a thriving hip hop scene with local artists like Sean Wire, Jazz at places like Wally's, Scullers, or the Beehive. A lively Irish folk scene in pubs across the city. Not to mention reggae and the underground punk scene. Check out our guide to arts and culture in Boston for where to find your vibe in the city. Go to WBUR.org slash field guide.
6: All things considered from NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
5: And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer.
10: Soon after Virginia's General Assembly gavels into session tomorrow, it will have a new House Speaker, Democrat Don Scott. He'll be the first black speaker in the Virginia Legislature's 400-year history. VPM's Jad Khalil recently spent time with Scott in his home district and brings us this profile on the politician's atypical journey to the highest seat in the Virginia State House.
4: In 2018, Don Scott was a successful trial lawyer in Portsmouth, Virginia. He was representing a city councilman charged with forgery. That put him in the public eye.
32: A reporter wanted to do a story, said, hey, you'd gone to jail before. Is that true? And I told him, yes. If you want to get the full
4: story, come see me. Scott told the reporter he was convicted on a drug-related charge while in law school in 1994 and was incarcerated for nearly eight years. It wasn't exactly a secret, but now the story was on the front page of the Sunday paper.
32: I remember receiving a text message from a good friend of mine. He texted me and said, uh, you're free now. So if whatever you want to do now, you can do it. But it kind of did make me feel relieved. Like, so now the people, everybody knows, So either they're gonna be with me or they're not.
4: Scott's personal history being public knowledge presented an opportunity to go into politics.
32: I used to always say the worst thing that will happen to me will not be losing an election. So
4: I think it gave me an advantage. He won his first race for the Virginia House in 2019. He ran on criminal justice reform, shaped by his time on both sides of the legal system. Once there, he continued to advocate for automatic restoration of voting rights for former felons. His own rights were restored in 2013 by petitioning the governor. On the floor of the state house, Scott employs a confrontational style full of quips and asides. The delegate has the floor.
32: Mr. Speaker, um, this thing is going a little too far.
4: In early 2022, Scott laid into Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin for his policies on how race was taught in schools. And
32: so far, what I've seen from his day one activities is not someone who is a man of faith, not a Christian, but someone who wants to divide the Commonwealth. I know the truth hurts. I don't want to make you cry like saying critical race theory, because I know it hurts your feelings.
4: I just want to say. The House will come to order. Scott says soon after that, Yunkin, who often speaks about his faith, asked Scott to come to the governor's mansion.
32: <laughs> I just laughed. I said, "He ain't the principal, and I ain't a student. If you want to see me, you can come over here." And to his credit, he came. He came to see me.
4: Moments like these raised Scott's profile within the Democratic Caucus. Less than six months later, he was chosen as House Minority Leader, and was now responsible for taking back the chamber from Republicans. On the campaign trail, every stump speech mentioned abortion access and threats to democracy. He's reminded of this when he sees the ships just outside his office window and recalls his own time in the Navy.
32: And I tell people, like, I feel like this is a continuation of standing watch. You know, we stand and watch over our democracy. It doesn't
4: end in the state house. Democrats did take back the whole state house last fall and chose Scott as their nominee for speaker. Before he headed to Richmond, Scott gathered supporters in his district for a send-off.
23: A lot of them are community leaders. There's a lot of pastors in here.
4: Eugene Swinson runs gun intervention and youth programming in Portsmouth. When Scott saw him, he gave Swinson a fist bump.
23: This is actually what I love about him. I like about him, I love about him. That he kind of makes sure the people that are forgotten about or the people that's all the way at the bottom, he makes sure that they get what they need to.
4: As Scott took to the podium, he took a moment to appreciate his rise from the child of a poor single mother to leader of America's first state house. And he expressed gratitude to the black legislators who served before him. We didn't even see ourselves
32: ever even raising our hand to run for Speaker of the House, let alone achieve it. So I'm so grateful that I get the opportunity standing on those giants. And I want y'all, when y'all see me in the room, understand
4: I carry all of y'all with me. And he recognized the enslaved Virginians who built the Capitol.
32: Every time I walk into that Capitol, y'all, And this is true, I promise you. I see ghosts. I see our ancestors who were in there, who were emptying people's urine and emptying the spittoons, building the buildings, breaking their back while people made decisions about whether they were human or not.
4: That history continues on the eve of Scott's ascension as the first black speaker. And he made a request to those sharing in the moment.
32: I need y'all to pray for me. Because there's a lot out there coming my way. I'm ready for it, I think, but I'm going to stay prayed up, and I hope that y'all will, too. Y'all have a great night.
4: Thank you, Portsmouth, Virginia. The General Assembly starts tomorrow. One of the first orders of business is the vote for Scott to take up the gavel. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Portsmouth, Virginia.
6: As millions of monarch butterflies make their way down the East Coast to Mexico for the winter, butterfly scientists want people in their flight path to report monarch sightings. Doing so can help these scientists answer critical questions as the butterfly's environment changes. Georgia Public Broadcasting's Sophie Gratas has more.
33: For centuries, eastern monarchs have been migrating thousands of miles south to nestle in volcanic mountain forests over the winter. Seeing this annual migration is what caused Susan Myers to fall in love with monarchs when she visited a sanctuary in Mexico. There are butterflies flying all around you, and... You can actually hear them. It's like soft rain. Myers is now a longtime volunteer with monarchs across Georgia. Unfortunately, over the years, she's played witness to another phenomenon. We could be losing this migration pattern. That's because many monarchs are skipping their migration and staying in the southern United States. Scientists think they know at least one reason why an overplanting of non native milkweed it attracts the butterflies to stay and play. But what skipping migration means for the future of the species still isn't totally clear. So scientists are relying on some citizen science to help find answers. Tell me a little bit about what we're asking people to do. Right, so we're we're asking people in the Southeast to be looking for adult monarchs first. And if you see adult monarchs, what are they doing? Meyer says to pay attention. Are there monarchs resting in trees or drinking nectar from flowers? Different behaviors act as signals for scientists. For example, mating is a red flag because it uses up energy meant for migration. And as Sonia Altizer with the University of Georgia's Project Monarch Health explains, mating during the winter also poses a different risk.
27: The winter breeding behaviors are accelerating the transmission of this debilitating
25: parasite that infects monarchs.
33: This parasite, called Ophriociscus electroscura, or OE for short, causes deformities in the monarchs. They can get sick and die. Altizer's found that almost all winter breeding monarchs in places like Texas and Florida have this parasite. At the same time, Altizer says that in
27: the South, at least some monarchs in a few places are. Doing what we would call coastal overwintering, that they're staying in a non-reproductive overwintering state all winter long, like we would see them doing in
33: Mexico. In the spring, these healthy monarchs will migrate back north. Altizer says they could be the future of the migrating monarch species. So learning more about them and tracking them with help from people on the ground is key. Monarch sightings can be reported online at journeynorth.org through March. For NPR News, I'm Sophie Grotas in Macon, Georgia.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
13: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2, With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. cunard.com slash crossing. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Tonight at 7 o'clock, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address. Listen live at 7 on 90.9 WBUR as she looks back and lays out her vision for the year ahead. Weather advisories on three fronts this evening and tomorrow morning, covering most of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and northern Connecticut. There's a flood watch as we prepare for two to three inches of rain. Over the night, overnight tonight and tomorrow afternoon, that on top of melting snow could cause flooding of rivers and streams in low-lying areas. There's a coastal flood advisory, and the winds could stir up some real problems tonight. This is ninety point nine WBUR. It's five fifty-nine.
11: I'm WBUR Arts and Culture Reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is ninety point nine WBUR FM Boston, ninety-two point seven WBUR Tisbury, and eighty-nine point one WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's medical issues and hospitalization was kept from the White House for days, even kept from the number two at the Pentagon. Today, news comes that Austin's being treated for prostate cancer, and the Pentagon had a statement of its own.
7: We recognize that we have to do a better job in terms of the timeliness and the transparency when it comes to the Secretary's help. More on that
0: and Austin's medical condition coming up. Most Paycheck Protection Program loans have been forgiven, despite billions of dollars going to recipients who didn't deserve to get the loans. Some companies, including in Massachusetts, are voluntarily paying back the loans, even though they didn't have to. And in the face of dozens of lawsuits and pressure points from parents, meta-rolls out new security features for teenagers. These stories and the latest forecaster coming up, it's 6.01.
26: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. After meeting Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his war cabinet today, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken gave a speech, calling on them to take greater steps to protect civilians and allow more aid into Gaza. NPR's Lauren Frey reports from Tel Aviv.
10: Secretary of State Antony Blinken accused Hamas of hiding in and firing from schools and hospitals in Gaza. But that doesn't absolve Israel, he said.
8: The daily toll on civilians in Gaza, particularly on children, is far too high.
10: Speaking to reporters in Tel Aviv, Blinken said Israel has agreed to allow a United Nations team to assess how displaced Gazans can return to their homes. He said the U.S. rejects any proposal to resettle them outside of the Strip, something far-right members of Israel's governing coalition have called for. Blinken also called an international genocide lawsuit against Israel meritless and said Arab countries will only invest in reconstruction if there's a pathway to a Palestinian state. Lauren Freier, NPR News. News tel aviv
26: after days of silence about what led up to his hospitalization doctors say defense secretary lloyd austin was being treated for prostate cancer which led to complications doctors at walter reed national medical center in the white house confirming the 70 year old austin developed a urinary tract infection following a medical procedure and had to be taken back to the hospital apparently austin's hospitalization was kept from the white house and the president for days though president biden said he retains faith in austin in Tallahassee, Florida Governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis delivered his State of the State address today. NPR's Greg Allen reports he had a few more proposals and mostly focused on past accomplishments.
15: DeSantis issued a state of emergency for 49 counties in Florida because of the threat of a storm system with high winds and tornadoes. The state capitol was open though for the start of the 2024 legislative session. In his address to lawmakers, DeSantis said by extending vouchers to all students, Florida enacted the nation's largest expansion of school choice. He also also said a parent's Bill of Rights protected children from what he called indoctrination and sexualized curriculum in the schools. The state of our
7: state is strong. Let's keep doing what works. Let's continue to make Florida the
15: envy of the nation. After his speech, DeSantis returned to Iowa. He's hoping a strong
26: finish in next week's caucuses can keep alive his bid for the Republican presidential nomination. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. Former President Donald Trump took time off from the campaign trail to appear in court today, though he was not required to be there. Trump's lawyers arguing before a federal appeals court about the concept of presidential immunity, which Trump's lawyers have hoped to use in terms of a defense against charges he sought to overturn the 2020 election. The three-judge federal appeals panel, however, appeared skeptical of the argument during today's hearing. Stocks slipped, giving back some of their gains from the start of the week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 150 Fifty-seven points. The Nasdaq was up 13 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is preparing to give her second State of the City address tonight. As WBUR's Amanda Beeland reports, one of the mayor's predecessors is anticipating an ambitious agenda.
19: Former Mayor Kim Janey says she expects Mayor Wu to put forth a bold vision for the future. And that vision includes a good working relationship with the Boston City Council.
18: I think she'll want to continue on a path where she is bringing people along for this journey of where she wants to take us. And so the council is a big part of that. And I think she recognizes that, which is why she was engaged in the council races last cycle. And I think it will serve her well.
19: Janie says she doesn't mean the relationship will always be smooth sailing, but she sees it being productive, even with potential bumps. Tonight's speech is scheduled to begin at 7.30. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Amanda Bieland. You can hear
0: Mayor Wu's State of the Spe- City speech live here at 90.9 WBUR. The U.S. Labor Department is accusing Woburn-based senior care company of withholding overtime wages for more than 600 skilled nurses. Next Step Healthcare runs 25 skilled nursing facilities in the state. The department says employees regularly work through their 30-minute lunch breaks for at least three years without additional pay. WBUR has reached out to Next Step for comment. The lineup for this year's Boston Calling Music Festival is out. WBR's Andrea Shea has more on the big names that are going to be coming. Pop
9: superstar Ed Sheeran, country singer Tyler Childers, and Las Vegas rockers The Killers will headline the massive three-day music festival this Memorial Day weekend. Also on the bill, rapper Megan The Stallion, Fish founder Trey Anastasio, and neo-soul singer Leon Bridges. More than 20 regional acts will take a stage dedicated to them, including Boston's Wolf Sisters, Cake Swag, and Billy Dean Thomas. Boston Calling tickets go on sale Thursday. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. A
0: rain and windstorm is moving into the Boston area this evening. WBUR's meteorologist Danielle Noyes has the forecast.
18: Well, our storms moving in a moderate to high impact event, mainly rain and wind. Although it starts as a burst of snow, we've seen it already along and outside of 495 this evening before changing over a coating to two inches possible in those spots before the flip to rain. It pours overnight tonight, downpours, rumbles of thunder possible, widespread one to three inches of rain will result in localized flooding. Rain pushes off the coast 6 to 7 a.m. It's in and out fairly quickly. The wind is going to be a big issue, gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour for many, 50 to 60 miles per hour along the coast, scattered damage and outages result the worst wind overnight until about sunrise then the gusts will throttle back a bit highs in the 50s fall through the 40s tomorrow afternoon
0: already raining in the boston area now 37 degrees at 607
17: wbur supporters include melville charitable trust committed to ensuring all people have a safe stable and affordable home that allows them to thrive information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at MelvilleTrust.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And
6: I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. We're getting some answers today to the questions that have been swirling around the health of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. This question started after it was revealed that Austin was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital on January 1st and that key officials, including the president, were unaware of the secretary's hospitalization until days afterwards. Well, today, Austin's doctors revealed that he was being treated for prostate cancer and complications from a resulting surgical procedure. NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman is here with the latest. Hey, Tom. Hey, Ari. Details just trickling out this afternoon. It's moving so quickly. What can you tell us right now?
7: Well, let's start with what Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder told us this afternoon. The department recognizes the understandable concerns expressed by the public, Congress, and the news media in terms of notification timelines and DOD transparency.
8: Well, so Secretary Austin was treated for prostate cancer at Walter Reed Hospital on December 22nd, underwent a prostatectomy, was under general anesthetic. And uh, we're also learning for the first time about this. And the White House was not informed about this. Uh, Austin did delegate uh, his authority to his deputy at that time. So then there were complications as a result of the uh, surgery. On the night of January 1st, Austin had uh, some pain in his legs and abdomen, and it turns out he had a urinary infection and went to intensive care at Walter Reed for monitoring. Officials said he's still in the hospital and his prognosis is excellent. But again... A lot of questions
6: here. Valuable information that it seems like maybe important people should have had before now. I mean, th- to say the obvious, this is not the way we usually learn about public officials' health problems, no, right? No, it's
8: absolutely astounding. And there are many, many questions here. Secretary Austin is very private, rarely talks to the press or is in in public. There have been times in the past when defense secretaries like Donald Rumsfeld and Robert Gates, you know, suffered broken bones. Public was notified immediately. And Ari just recently, the top Marine Corps general, Eric Smith, suffered a heart attack. The public was immediately informed and kept up to date on his medical condition. Again, we're talking the defense secretary here, the top military advisor to the president at a time of war in the Middle East with American troops sometimes engaging uh, with uh, militant uh, groups in, in that region. The White House said President Biden only learned today the secretary was being treated for prostate cancer. Now, mm. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder said there are shortfalls here, and he said we have to do a better job. And I spoke with one retired official who said, listen, this is either bad judgment or a breakdown in
6: communications. Either way, this official called it very weird. What do we know about how the breakdown in communication happened, and who knew what when? Well, that's still kind of confusing, too.
8: We know Austin was transferred by ambulance to Walter Reed in the night of January 1st. The next day, the staff was told And his deputy, uh, Kathleen Hicks, was, you know, basically took over as his acting secretary. But she was never told he was in the hospital. Hmm. She was in Puerto Rico and wasn't told until a couple of days later that he was, in fact, in the hospital. She offered to come home and they said, don't worry, he's going to take over back his duties on Friday. But again, people were just left unaware, including the president of the United States.
6: And in a sentence or two, what's the reaction been from the White House on the Hill?
8: Well, Democrats and Republicans on the Hill want answers. They want to know what his condition is, why people weren't notified. They're very, very upset. Ari, you're likely going to
6: see hearings on this. NPR Pentagon correspondent Tom Bowman, thank you. You're welcome.
10: Now we have a story about a group of people who did something many other people might consider foolish. They got loans, sometimes for a lot of money, and paid them back even though they didn't have to.
6: We're talking about the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP for short. And Sasha, you've been looking into this as part of your reporting work on NPR's investigations team. So you got to know one of those people, and let's listen to you introduce us to him now.
10: Bob Morrill is a lawyer whose office looks mostly like what you'd expect in a traditional law firm, the framed diploma, the grandfather clock. But there's also something odd.
2: Oh, that's my Tommy Bahama beach chair. It's multicolored. It has sort of Caribbean colors of oranges and, and reds.
10: It's left over from COVID lockdown days when Morrill and his co-workers couldn't enter their building for health safety reasons. So when they had to meet, they'd gather outside in the parking lot, B-Y-O-C, bring your own chair.
2: It would look like something out of a mob movie like you'd have a bunch of lawyers with masks on sitting in these beach chairs talking about business
10: a comical sight but a nerve-wracking time financially Morrill was managing partner then and his mind swirled with concerns about how the pandemic might affect business
2: our revenues going to drop off by how much are they going to drop off how soon are they going to drop off
10: so his firm gilmore reese and carlson of wellesley massachusetts turned to the federal government's Paycheck Protection Program, which gave loans to small businesses during COVID.
2: We applied for and received a loan for $700,000.
10: Now, NPR has done many stories about how the $800 billion Paycheck Protection Program was rampant with fraud and waste. By one estimate, fraudsters may have gotten $64 billion. Billions more went to businesses that didn't need it, and the companies owned by wealthy celebrities, including Khloe Kardashian and Tom Brady. Yet the vast majority of PPP loans have been forgiven, 96% of all the money. But Bob Morrill's law firm is a very different story. Back at his office, he shows me a pile and of paper.
2: In this stack here, I have our application for the PPP loan, and I have the loan paid in full. It was 694000 and then we actually paid interest of about $5,600 on that amount.
10: His firm repaid its entire Uh, loan, even though it would have been eligible for forgiveness according to the program's rules. So why did it repay it? Morrill says it's simple. The business was able to survive without the money, so keeping it would have felt wrong.
2: The analogy that comes to mind to me is like, You're throwing life preservers to people on a boat in a storm, and if they don't need it when the boat pulls back into the harbor, they ought to give the life preservers back.
10: And the pandemic turned out to be not that stormy for his business. Morrill says the firm never had to lay anyone off or reduce their hours or cut their pay. It even made money.
2: Was it as much profit as we would have had but for COVID? No, but that's the risk of running a business. You have good years and bad years.
10: So the law firm returned the loan.
2: No, I haven't heard about a lot of cases of that happening.
10: University of Chicago finance professor Eric Zwick studied the Paycheck Protection Program. Some companies repaid their loans because they didn't meet forgiveness criteria. But to be eligible for forgiveness and still pay it back on ethical grounds? Zwick says that's rare.
2: I would expect that particular reason to be fairly uncommon. But it's interesting that there are some cases that you found. mean, I think probably more interesting that there are so few
10: Very few. NPR analyzed data from the Small Business Administration and found, of the 11.5 million PPP loans issued, only about 73,000 were repaid without requesting forgiveness—just six-tenths of a percent. That includes some large companies like Shake Shack and the LA Lakers that were pressured to return the money after public uproar. The SBA says it also includes companies that thought repaying would be easier than applying for forgiveness, or that thought they weren't eligible for forgiveness. But repaying a forgivable loan out of benevolence is a foreign concept to many experts.
11: Hello, everyone. Welcome to what promises to be a fascinating conversation on the Paycheck Protection Program. Listen to an
10: exchange at this panel I attended at Harvard University last year. Prominent economist Glenn Hubbard, former Dean of Columbia University's Business School, sounds baffled by this question from an audience member. Were any of those loans
12: repaid? Uh essentially they weren't. That wasn't the point was effectively to give away the money. Um so the only way you would repay is if you violated some of the tenants of it. But no, you wouldn't expect it to be repaid.
10: NPR reached out to numerous companies that repaid their loans without requesting forgiveness. Most wouldn't talk, so it's unclear why they made that decision. The president of one bank that processed PPP loans, Burt Tallerman of Cape Cod Five Cent Savings Bank, says some may have repaid the money to avoid a potential
12: government audit. But if someone had that principle that this was intended for someone who needed it, I didn't need it, therefore I'm paying it back, good for you. Although, truthfully,
10: I was skeptical of Bob Morrill's explanation for why his law firm repaid its loan, so I pushed him on possible other reasons. Did it think keeping the money could have hurt its reputation? Morrill said no. He assumes most people wouldn't even have known his firm got a loan. Could it have had negative tax consequences? No, because PPP loans are not taxable. Was he aware forgiveness was easy? Morrill said yes. In fact, he said repayment was difficult.
2: It was more of an effort than I would have anticipated to pay it back. Trying to pay it back was kind of a headache, you know, so the whole system was set up for everything to be forgiven.
10: You're a very tiny minority. Most people I've interviewed had the expectation that it was going to be forgiven and absolutely chose to get it forgiven. So I'm sure there are listeners thinking, this guy sounds very Pollyanna.
2: Maybe I'm a Boy Scout. I don't know. I don't know. I just, it just, it was the right thing to do. I don't know what to tell you. I believe in America. I believe in capitalism. And I don't see it as my place to have my business subsidized by the government if I don't need it.
10: Yet countless businesses that thrived during COVID kept their PPP loans, like many construction and manufacturing and teleworking software firms, Morrell says it bothers him that more companies didn't give the money back.
2: I don't want to sound self-righteous, but the people at the higher wealth end of the spectrum that kept it, that didn't need it. Yeah, I got a problem with that.
10: And he wishes the government had appealed to companies to return money they didn't need.
2: I mean, I worry sometimes in Washington, money is not real. It's like, it's like snowflakes in a storm. They just throw it out there. Who cares? But at the end of the day, someone has to pay this back, right? My kids have to pay it back. My grandkids will be paying it back. Because all those Paycheck
10: Protection Program loans that were forgiven have contributed to the national debt, which is now $34 trillion. Sasha Pfeiffer, NPR News.
6: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR coming up this evening on Business News on WBUR. Men have long dominated startup investing, but now the number of women angel investors has reached a new high.
18: The thing that's changed in a lot of the groups that are emerging today is they're much more human. They're more vulnerable. They're more accepting of
0: people who don't know what they're doing. The growing role of women investors coming up in Business News, which starts in about 10 minutes. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, the latest on the rain and windstorm moving into the region right now. Also, how Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis is betting his political future on Iowa. Listen when you wake up tomorrow.
17: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DonFoot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project. At house or DonFoot.com, beauty on time.
0: The Dow dropped about four-tenths of a percent today. S&P recovered some of its earlier losses. It closed down more than a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq had a small gain of about a tenth of a percent. Massachusetts is among the most expensive states in the country in which to start a business, according to a new report. The Bay State comes in third, right behind New York and Washington State. That's based on factors including wages, commercial rents, business filing fees, and corporate tax rates. The analysis was done by consulting firm Venture Smarter and reported by the Boston Business Journal. Mississippi was ranked the least expensive state. And a Somerville company plans to open a manufacturing facility in Western Mass to make low-carbon cement. Sublime Systems says it'll develop the plant in Holyoke. Sublime makes cement using renewable energy instead of kilns that are fired by fossil fuels.
9: And it uses raw materials that emit less CO2. It's 621. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeast and Mass, where since 1965 their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim, Maplewoodyearround.com. This is All Things Considered from
10: NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer.
6: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it's making those apps safer for kids. This comes after growing pressure from all sides. Parents, lawmakers, former employees, you name it. And the company is also fending off lawsuits. NPR Tech correspondent Dara Kerr has the details. Hi, Dara. Hi, Ari. What is Meta changing about how these apps work?
14: So, this change is one of the biggest moves Meta has made to try and make Instagram and Facebook safer for kids. The company says that over the next few months, it'll start automatically restricting various types of content on teenagers' accounts. That means posts about suicide, self-harm, and eating disorders. And this is for all people under the age of 18. So say you're a teen and one of your friends posts something about self-harm on Instagram. Meta says its filters will automatically block you from seeing that post. And teens aren't also, are also not going to be able to search for that type of content. And if they do, Meta says they'll be directed to resources for help.
6: A lot of questions about these announcements. I guess the biggest is, will this actually make things safer for kids online?
14: Yeah, it is really hard to solve things like this. On the one hand, it may restrict teens from seeing certain posts, but on the other hand, it could prevent them from knowing when to reach out to a friend in trouble. And today, I've heard from a bunch of child safety advocates who think these changes still don't go far enough. There's a lot of toxic content on social media, so teens may still be vulnerable to bullying and and seeing posts that aren't being captured by Meta's filters. Does
6: Meta even know who is a teen and who's not?
14: Well, you're supposed to put in your birth date when you sign up, but it's pretty easy for kids to lie about their age on Facebook and Instagram. Here's psychologist Jean Twangy. Their parents might have no idea just the way it's set up because you don't need parental permission. Just check a box. Check a box
10: saying that you're... 13 or, um, you know, you choose a different birth year and boom, you're on.
14: I talked to a Meta spokeswoman about this and she acknowledged people can misrepresent their ages on the apps. And she said Meta is investing in age verification tools and technology to try and detect when people lie about their ages.
6: These apps have been around for years and Meta has been criticized for these sorts of things almost as long. Why did it take until now for them to put these policies in place?
14: Yeah, well, this year has been a particular doozy for META. Um, we need a lot more time, already to get into all of it, but it's fair to say META has been attacked on all fronts. Parent groups have rallied on Capitol Hill, and this is even an issue that's united conservatives and liberals in Congress. A bipartisan group of senators are pushing to pass legislation called the Kids' Online Safety Act, which would hold social media companies accountable for feeding teens toxic content. And also, a new meta whistleblower came forward with more information about what goes on inside the company.
6: A new whistleblower, but a couple years ago, we heard from another whistleblower that Facebook was aware its products harmed kids, right?
14: Yeah, yeah. In 2021, an initial whistleblower came forward. And then this past November, Arturo Bahar, whose job involved protecting Meta's users, went public with new internal documents. Those showed Meta hasn't stopped its algorithms from pushing harmful content to teens. And that's led to a massive lawsuit by 40 states alleging Meta's social media products are addictive, and that has fueled a mental health crisis for teens. So Mena's announcement today, which was in a blog post, may be a way to try and reckon with all of this pressure.
6: Thank you. That's NPR's Derek Kerr. And if you or someone you know is in an emotional crisis, reach out to the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline by dialing 988.
15: The drought is over. Hail, hail Michigan. They are the champions of college football, 2023.
10: Last night, the Michigan Wolverines defeated the Washington Huskies 34 to 13, making them college national champions. It's a big moment for a school that's measured its drought in two ways. First, Michigan's last national football title in 1997 was shared with Nebraska. And second, if we're talking about standalone titles, the Wolverines were last champs in 1948. It's also a big moment for college football as a whole. Because next year, the playoffs expand from 4 to 12 teams. That sets up a new era of play. Nicole Auerbach is a senior writer with The Athletic and NBC Sports, and she was in Houston last night as the confetti came showering down. Hi, Nicole. Hi, thanks for having me. Did this game live up to its hype? Well, I would say the middle of
16: the game was not necessarily the most exciting football I have ever seen in my life, but it absolutely did because you had two programs that had not been in this stage in a really long time. So the fan bases, the energy, and the storylines were everywhere, and it it was a lot of fun going into the game.
10: By the way, speaking of a very long time, my husband mentioned to me last night that the last time Michigan won, Tom Brady was on its football team. Is he right about that and how long that's been? (laughs) And we know that Tom Brady is basically a cyborg
16: at this point. So yes, it's been a minute.
10: (laughs) (laughs) What were some key moments that swung the game in Michigan's favor?
16: Well, right out of the gate, Donovan Edwards had two long Touchdown runs of more than 40 yards right out of the gate. That'll do it and set the tone early. And then it was the end of the game where JJ McCarthy completes a big pass to tight end Colston Loveland, setting up a Blake Corham touchdown that creates the cushion that they needed. But essentially they were able to run the ball, and that's how they won the game with their defense
10: and the run game. We mentioned that the playoff will expand to 12 teams next season. Briefly, how is that going to work?
16: So it's Similar to how it is now with a selection committee, but there will be a designated amount of spots for conference champions that are highly ranked, and then there will be at-large spots. So you will probably see a lot more teams from the Big Ten and the SEC than anywhere else, because those are typically where the best teams are, and these conferences are getting bigger next year as well, so they will have a lot of contenders. But you will see home campus games for the first round. There will be buys for the top four seeds, and there will just be additional games. And more teams will be alive in the playoff hunt as we get later into the regular season, mid-November, I think we'll be talking about twenty thirty teams still alive in the race.
10: Nicole, from your viewpoint, what are the pros and cons of this expansion?
16: Well, I've always been a proponent of expansion because I think you need everyone to start the season with a path to play for a national championship instead of people being told by a group in a boardroom that you're just not good enough. So I think that's a really important piece. It'll also keep more regions, more teams engaged in the regular season as it goes on because we won't just eliminate teams the second that they have their first loss or their second loss. The cons are there's more games, and this is something that comes up a lot when we talk about player welfare and player rights because – you know, they're not unionized, they are not employees, and they're being asked to play more games without salaries. And there's injury risk because obviously these are not professional athletes and they're waiting to get their payday in the NFL. Um, So there's just those concerns and that awkwardness there of asking for more for a multi-billion dollar industry in college sports, but there is no revenue sharing. So the money is not going
10: directly to the players, at least at this point. Mm, That added physical toll is a really interesting point. Before we let you go, what are some of the biggest headlines you're watching for ahead of next season? Well,
16: everything is changing this offseason, and that's why it was really interesting to cover this championship game because it really did feel like the end of an era. I think you're moving more and more towards the way that professional sports works with divisions and conferences and really a national sport. And this is a college sports that has always been very regional and rivalries, and it's not been this way. And so I think we're really going to be confronted by what a big business college sports and specifically
10: college football will be. And I think it's going to feel very different. Nicole Auerbach covers college football for The Athletic and NBC. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
6: And this is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu delivers her State of the City address tonight. Listen live in 30 minutes on 90.9 WBUR as the mayor reveals her vision for Boston for the year to come. We're getting rained on in the Boston area now and there's a lot more rain where that came from. Here's WBUR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce.
18: The heaviest rain from midnight until 6 a.m. or so. The rain should end in Boston around or just after 7 tomorrow morning. There may be a lingering shower or two after that. Travel will be tough through the morning hours with some lingering flooding concerns with rain totals 1 to 3 inches, some minor coastal flooding for the tomorrow morning high tide. This is WBUR. It's now 6.30.
11: WBUR supporters include Explo. Where curiosity fuels discovery, EXPLO is part magic, part summer enrichment program for kids and teens entering grades 4 through 12. Day and overnight programs in Boston, Berkeley, London, New York, and Oxford. For more information, visit EXPLO.org summer.